Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again with Adam Chemaluski. Chema, how are we, man? Dude, first episode in the new apartment. I'm excited. Let's do this up, man, for sure. I can hear your voice echoing. It's so large. Yeah, that's the kind of space that we're talking about right now. I, my Our master bedroom is one of those rooms where... Um, the closet and the bathroom is all like in this one side. So you have to go through a door yeah. and it's one big room, which is our bedroom. Then there's a closet and the bathroom. So dude, I'm telling you, yeah, we have space and I'm so excited about it. And you didn't have to like cut off any of your limbs to pay for it, correct? Very true. Not yet anyway. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I'm not going to lie. It's, um, it's not too much more than what we're paying now. And I cannot believe that I actually had to say the phrase like, I cannot believe that um, what $2,800 will get you in L.A. compared to what $3,000 a month will get you in L.A. Those words actually came <laughs> out of my mouth. And uh, I never thought I'd ever have to say that. And we learned a lot about the L.A. renters market out here. And a lot of the buildings that are in our neighborhood are kind of similar to like what the Karate Kid grew up in, where you walk mm-hmm. in an apartment complex and there's a pool and it's like one or two levels. It kind of looks like a motel almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And these places like. Yeah, it's cool that you got a pool right there, but they're not necessarily all that nice. There were mm-hmm. some places that had like incredible amenities, but the apartment looked like a hotel. There's one place that Jess and I are we're kind of upset that we lost on, but um, we we probably would not have gotten this place. Uh, there's this really awesome place that had like a um, easily like a 150 200 square foot wraparound porch that was phenomenal oh, and this geez. awesome yeah awesome building. But they wanted us to move in with like ten days, and granted. Jess and I did move within 10 days of seeing that apartment, but we just moved into another unit in our building so we could take advantage of kind of this deal that they gave us to keep us around, which I was yeah. very, very appreciative of. So we get to take advantage of that next month. So I at least am guaranteed two months of having all of my limbs before I have to start selling stuff. <laughs> before, before you start showing up on Instagram, like missing fingers. <laughs> That's right. Look at this Kelly living, bro. <laughs> You're, yeah, you unintentionally throw up the west side every time you every time you wave. I throw up the west side, and I only have like um like three fingers, so it looks a little weird. Yeah, exactly. I had a pawn one off. You know, you know what though? But like in all seriousness, as we were just talking about off air, you're gonna need that extra space because you for sure are gonna be working from home for quite a while. And exactly. And 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 like just you know thinking about like your, your old apartment, like the setup you're telling me about, that's just not conducive to like spending. Uh, like you know, spending a big chunk of your day at a desk trying to get trying to get something oh, done. Not at all, man. Like this place, dude. We have like um, it's an own like kind of reserved area of the apartment for a desk. And I got to tell you, this is even like the best thing that's happened to us. So my Wi-Fi was really bad at the old place. So working from home was kind of a nightmare. Like the computer would always freeze. There was mm-hmm. these connection issues and mm-hmm. stuff. We got a brand new Wi-Fi system in this place. That's divided up into like two different forms of Wi-Fi. So all of our appliances go on to like our, they just call it 2G. I don't know if it's 2G or 5G or 8G or whatever the hell this yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's, I, I have the same system where it's just like, I have a router that I run mm-hmm. that just runs like my computer on one network yep. and then all of my devices on another one. That's exactly what we have, dude, and it's made all the difference yep. in the world. So we got to, we did the Mac thing, like we because I was telling you about the last week learning Final Cut or Final yeah Final Cut. Mm-hmm. Um, we got like a the deal with the Mac. Jess's boss sold it to us. It came with this really big monitor. So I just started working from home using the Mac, using the one big screen, and kind of like 
setting up little like almost kind of mini workstations within the screen for the different like software and stuff that mm. I'm using. It's been revolutionary. Like I, I sh- we should have done this like a long fucking time ago. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, but um, you're, you're totally right on that. Cause you know, we're obviously the way LA County's going and like California in general, we could easily be in the lockdown here uh, again, anytime now. So upgrading our um, workstations, our apartments, having more space, having rooms that we can, you know, just walk in and out of. And it's not just like a three room, you know, kind of palace thing. It's, it's been a game changer and we've only been here a week. Yeah, for sure. The the next thing you got to do, and I'm telling you, this makes a world of difference. Get a nice like executive work chair. Yeah, dude. I got like, I awesome. I got the $50 one from Amazon. It's already kind of taken its toll on me. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. It gave me a rash like the first couple of days I had it. Like, And yeah, I mean, I had this like kind of horseshoe pattern going um, kind of in the area, like in my lower back and stuff like that, like the small of my back area. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't just, just saw it like when I was in the shower. She's like, what the hell? And I like, I had, no, I'm like, I had no idea, dude. I'm like, it has to be from the chair. Right. Yeah, no, dude, I'm telling you, spend like the 150, 160 bucks on like a really nice chair, and it makes mm-hmm. a world of difference when you're sitting there. World of difference. Yeah. Oh, dude, I can imagine. I'm going to be there for a while. <laughs> yeah. All right. But anyway, we are, we are, we're not talking about apartments or lockdowns. Uh, I think we've done enough of that, uh, especially the lockdown talk over the, over the past several months. I think we've done enough of that. Uh, so we're going to do something a little bit, uh, we're going to do a, a very entertainment pop culture centered one. Uh, it's a little bit different. I'm calling this episode the remix. Unless you have an idea for the title of this episode, other than this is the remix, I have no. I think that the remix is completely appropriate. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what we're gonna do here, and 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 we've talked obviously, we've had multiple episodes talking about reboots and um, and cover songs and reinterpretations of movies and TV shows and things. We're kind of we're gonna kind of go down that same path, but. Uh, we're gonna do some things with these with with certain properties that are either vastly different or subtly different. You know, I guess once as we go along here, it'll, it'll be easier to explain. But basically, we're gonna make some changes in pop culture and just imagine what the outcomes are. Right? Some of the changes are gonna be kind of subtle. Some of the changes are gonna be really big. Like I have a couple of ones that are very gigantic um, mm-hmm. in, in their scope when you when you really begin to think about it. Um, we're also going to have some, we're, we're going to have some like open-ended questions, just sort of some what ifs. Um, but we're going to cover everything from sports, obviously the stuff that we always cover, right? Sports, movies, TV, music. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe politics will make its way in here. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't like check, I don't check Chema's stuff ahead of time. Um, so, you know, and he doesn't see my stuff ahead of time. So, you know, I don't know exactly where it's all going to go, but it's good. You know, it's going to go someplace interesting as we kind of reimagine, uh, reimagine like some entertainment and pop culture uh, properties, and, and, and I will say this: this is like the important part, and I think this this helps. I think this helps more so than it, it can ever hurt. This particular kind of thought exercise is that these things have to be grounded in some kind of reality. Um, mm-hmm. So, like I gave Chema an example, like um, in the in the eighty three draft or eighty four eighty three draft. No, eighty four draft doesn't really matter. The draft that Michael Jordan was in. Um, Hakeem Olajuwon goes number one overall. Pretty good pick. Um, number two overall, Sam Bowie, and then Michael Jordan goes number three overall. What if the Portland Trailblazers had drafted Michael Jordan instead of Sam Bowie? Uh, you know, like, where does that set, you know, how does that going to set off the, the Portland Trailblazers uh, path forward and obviously the Chicago Bulls path forward? Um, so, like, that's a, that's a good sort of, like, what if, or, like, we're going we're gonna to switch things up here. But, like, a bad example would be, like, what if the Portland Trailblazers drafted an alien instead yeah. of Sam Bowie? 
you can make an argument right. that Michael Jordan is an alien, but <laughs> you know, like it has to be, it has to be grounded in some kind of reality so we can kind of extrapolate and imagine things uh, going forward. It's a lot easier to imagine Michael Jordan in a bla- in a Blazers uniform than it is a fucking alien in a Blazers uniform. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So like, so a lot of these are they're going to go pretty far. Again, like I said, I have one that's a, a a very large change, but for the most part, these are things that really could happen. That really could happen, and maybe according well, according to us, probably should have happened. <laughs> uh, in, in some of these scenarios so chemo let's start off with like a, I'll, I'll, this is like our little warm-up set here um and i i added this last minute because i i messaged chemo like on thursday night i guess uh that i added this because somehow some way in the course of putting this together and all the episodes that we had done on reboots and remakes and and what you know what have you i forgot to include a section for that um go fucking figure so i'm calling this <laughs> little section reignition and I, we're gonna take two properties to reboot um, we don't have to get too in-depth with everything here, but, you know, just give me an idea of, like, what you're rebooting and just give me some details on it if you can. So, Chum, you just want to start off with uh, with your first uh, first property that you are reigniting. You bet, dude. And I'm going to get really specific because both of my properties are early 90s NBC sci-fi uh, TV shows. Oh, nice. So I'm really excited about this. And they actually, at one point in time, aired on the same night of TV, which makes this whole thing that much more special for me. So the first property... It's called Sequest DSV. I've talked about this on the show before. I can't really remember in what capacity, but for those who don't remember Sequest, it is basically Star Trek, but underwater. And there's this big submarine that um, is called the Sequest, and they go on these various adventures underwater all over the world solving various problems. And this uh, sitcom aired on NBC from 1993 to 1996, with the last season being titled uh, Sequest 2032, because there was this thing where they went into the future that is escaping me right now. And another fun factoid is uh, Sam Raimi's brother, Ted, was also on this show. So Ted Raimi, go figure. Ted Raimi pops up in all kinds of stuff. Yes, he does. Yeah, really this was does. like an or younger kind of bid role for him. He was really good in it, too. Like mm-hmm. I enjoyed his character very much. So I'm going to take this show and I'm going to turn it into a movie directed by Zack Snyder. And I'm willing to give Zack Snyder um, a, another job here with, for some reasons that I'm going to probably get into at some point in time in this uh, in this episode. And feeling like Zack Snyder needs a little bit of a redemption story. And he's a very visual director. And I can imagine this movie being a lot of underground cool looking visuals and stuff like stuff to really like build the world that is um, that the Sequest DSV would be traveling on. Mm -hmm. So where I was going to um, do the casting, Roy Schneider was the original captain of the ship. His name was Nathan Bridger and he was, he was in jaws. So they, I guess, you know, made the connection jaws, water, Sequest water. So the person that I'm going to go with is Patrick Wilson. And he was also a co-star of another successful nautical themed movie or based movie called Aquaman. Aquaman, (laughs) He was, uh, he was Prince or he was fantastic as Prince or too for, for that role. And so I would um, put, Patrick Wilson as the as the captain of the ship. He does look like a military officer to me, but he's not necessarily like a colonel in the Marine Corps. He's not necessarily like a guy who fights on land officer ship. I do kind of see him, though, as like a on the sea or maybe in the Air Force, kind of like, you yeah. know, not the grunt, not being boots on the ground. Type right. He's not officer. a grunt. He's not a grunt. Exactly. Exactly, dude. So. I would have um, Jonathan Brandis was also on the show, the um, the co-star of the infamous uh, Chuck Norris movie Sidekicks. He this is actually um, like one of his like last big like kind of TV roles that I remember him in, and he played uh, this character named Lucas Wallencheck, who was like the boy genius computer whiz on the ship, mm-hmm. and he was also like the young heartthrob for like the female fans to kind of you know get them into the show. 
So this one, I think, is a dead on. I, I don't even know who else I'd put in this role, but Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things. He just has that adorable, nerdy looking kind of persona about him that the same way that this Lucas Wallencheck character had. And even they kind of had the same hair. They'd be about the same age if this were to go into production tomorrow. So I feel that um, Finn Wolfhard is kind of like your go-to nerdy heartthrob guy. And I, I hope to God that that guy's around for, for a long time. And the last character that I would add, um, they did give Roy Schneider a love interest. And her name was Dr. Kristen, was Kristen Westphalen, who was played by Stephanie Beecham, this, um, I think, a British actress that I cannot tell you anything else that she's been in. Mm. So... The person that I would want to play Patrick Wilson's potential love interest is a kind of off-kilter selection of mine. And I went with Naomi Harris, who plays Moneypenny in the new uh, Bond movies and stuff. I've always thought her character in the new Bond movies was fantastic. I did really appreciate this take on Moneypenny that they Mm -hmm. did. And I I do like some of the directions that the new Bond movies have decided to go in. Like Skyfall is just absolutely amazing. And giving Moneypenny this kind of new secret agent edge that they've given to her in the last two movies. I really dug with that character. So I would have her play Patrick Wilson's potential love interest um, for this, you know, reboot that I'm doing in my mind. And I figured the the movie itself would kind of be a combination of a couple different episodes of the show. I would just kind of take, you know, plots that maybe were good for an episode, condense them down and maybe make it into like an act arc or something like that. But the main underlying thread of the movie will be taken from the season one finale where Lucas's father built a wind turbine field on the bottom of the ocean to generate energy. And the wind turbine field cracks the Earth's crust, which then exposes a bunch of mantle that's seeping into the ocean and everything, all this lava. And they have to the sequest is basically called in to stop it. So that would be the general plot of the uh, of the movie. And I, being a fan of the show that I am, I had the little models, I had the action figures, I loved it, and I feel that this show, at one point in time, does need to make a resurgence, either on the big or small screen. I, you know, I, I wouldn't be shocked, because we talk about this all the time, how, you know, you're not allowed to make original stories anymore in Hollywood. Right. And it, sorry, mm-hmm. it's just, Chubb, if you're working on an original script, you just throw it out now. Um, I know. Because it's not going to get picked up ever. Um, there's going to come a point in time where, like, established i there's like we're gonna run out of big established ips and you're gonna mm-hmm. have to take stuff like like sequest and yeah. and re and figure out how you can either you know redo that as a series or in your case uh, as a movie yeah dude and i'm telling you like obviously these problems in the ocean aren't going away anytime soon so there's just so much relevance that they can yeah. put this show into yes. in the world today. Like even if it's something like them fixing an oil spill or something that just happened or uh, that, that trash Island that's in the middle of the Pacific mm-hmm. has grown even bigger and they got to do something about it. They could really make it relevant with the times. And this show was, a, it was a success. It ran for a couple of seasons. So it's, they take things that, you know, I, Barely even knew was a uh, Angels in the Outfield, for example. I, I watched it at the gym, part of it at the gym the other day. Mm-hmm. That movie was a movie from like the 20s and stuff. Yeah. They've rebooted that. Who knows what they'll reboot next? You know, basically anything. There, there are certain things, in my own personal opinion, are off the table, but a majority of intellectual properties are up for, up for discussion. I, I, you know, like I, I know we've had, I think we've had the discussion before about like the things that are sort of like sacred. Um, yes. But even then, like. I never thought they'd remake Ben Hur, and they did. So, yeah, um, right. You know, I, I just there are some things I don't know how you remake them and make them relevant. Like I don't know mm-hmm. how you make Metropolis relevant a hundred years after it gets released. Um, right. But 
for the most part, like I'm open to reinterpretations of anything. I, yeah. Like if you, if you make it interesting and it's well done, who gives a fuck? That's right, dude. That is exactly right. And you're right. There are some things like I just you're right. And Metropolis is one. I can't really see Casablanca being remade. No. But then again, like if somebody does say they're remaking Casablanca, that I'm not going to lie, that is probably going to get some intrigue out of me to at least check it out. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. they're, do, they're doing their job. And they've, and they've taken the story of Casablanca and used it in other movies and other TV. I mean, like that that framework is there in a lot of things, but certainly like no one's ever said like, I can do Casablanca better. <laughs> like, right. No one's ever said that. You know, you can't. <laughs> no, exactly. No, exactly. You, you cannot. No. <laughs> All right. I, I like that though. Sequest. I, that, I love that one. Um, I am, I'm going to go with TV as well here for my first property. And it's something that we're, we are coming up on the 10th anniversary of the controversial finale. Uh, and of course, chum, I'm talking about lost. Um, and I, I, and honestly, I think I'm going to dive. In, I think I'm going to dive into another rewatch of this uh, here shortly. But um, there's been talk about rebooting Lost anyway uh, the last couple of years um, because you know I, I mean ABC if they had their way this show never would have went off the air it would right. still be going right now um, but <clears throat> I am okay with the idea of a Lost reboot under very very particular conditions and it's the things that. The, some of the things are in terms of like what kind of what you know what kind of I don't want to say spoiled the show but like what kind of there's a lot of there's a lot of fat on Lost uh, when you go back and if you I don't know if you if you plan on ever in the near future partaking in a rewatch of it you'll you'll kind of notice like how much fat is actually on the bones of this thing yes and there's quite a bit they could just cut out um, of course and that is all because of ABC. Because once ABC realized after the first season that what they had was like a legit hit, uh, you know, they're like, hey, you know, like I, it was after season one, Lindelof wanted to cut the the cut the episode order down and focus on certain storylines. And ABC right. was like, no, you have to do 24 episodes a year. And yep. it wasn't until after season three that they finally get a compromise on how to break the seasons down. And I think, of course, I think it drops down to what, like 16 episodes or 15 episodes. It's something like something that, like and that. then the the writer strike happens in there yeah. too, which affects negotiations and yeah. everything. Yeah, exactly. But you know, Lindelof wanted Lindelof and, and Cuse uh, wanted a much tighter story than what ABC wanted for obvious reasons. You know, it's it's the old creatives clashing with the with the suits kind of kind of deal. Um, so like, I, I do want Lost back, but I, no studio, no network interference. Like, you can't get in the way of what the story wants. You know, you can't get in the way of the story of uh, what Lindelof wants to make the story. Um, right. Similarly, I don't want it to focus on the original cast. I don't care if they are involved in it. You know, like when we think about the flashbacks, if you're paying attention, especially in seasons two through, you know, two through six, if you're paying attention to the flashbacks and the flash sideways or whatever the hell they call them, um, there's cast members in all of them. Like you'll, you'll see, you know, you'll, in the back of like a John Locke flash, you'll see Nadia in the background mm -hmm. or something. Um, so like that, that's totally fine, but I don't think it should really focus on the main, ca the, the main cast that we know. Um, it should be some kind of different story, probably almost like an, in almost kind of like in an anthology sort of way. It should just be like the story of the Island. I mean, they, they unloaded, there's so many mysteries that were never completely answered, which is again, totally fine. But like, if you were to do a new, if you were to do a reboot of this, answer some of those questions or at least... Mm -hmm. Or at least give us a little bit more of a look into the statue, 
give us a little bit more of a look into the the other others, the ones the ones that live in the temple that are led by uh, Dugan. Give us yep. give us more of um you know I would I would I would do several episodes of just Jacob and the Man in Black, you know, understanding their lives uh, and and exactly what they are and, and you know and how they became how they became to mm-hmm. inhabiting uh, inhabiting the island. Um, you know, so I think there's just like there's so many stories you could sort of go. There's so many like there's different stories you can you can kind of take on without necessarily just focusing on like what's Jack and what's Jack and Kate up to now? How do we get Jack and Kate back on the island? Like that would be insane, um, right? You know, and I think most importantly, this needs to be 100% in the vision of what Lindelof and whomever else he wants to work with. It, it has to be under his complete creative control, which was something that I don't want to say that they fought with necessarily, because I mean, this after the middle of the first season, it is Lindelof and Carlton Cuse's show, like 100%. But still having to please what, what ABC wanted and still having to sort of... Bend, you know, when when ABC says you do this, you figure out a way to get close to what they want. Um, if this show was on HBO, Lindelof would have full control to do whatever he wanted. And that's what I want mm-hmm. to see from a Lost Reboot. Dude, I can get behind this all the way. And you make a really good point, which I think would be one of the only ways that the show could actually work would be to go the anthology route. The cast is so goddamn big. It's huge. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So, like you kind of have to number one, like pick the right people to focus on. Mm -hmm. And the only way to really sell that story to the audience is to give that character like 100% focus. It wouldn't really work if, I don't know, you just selected five characters that were in the group and then all of a sudden it's about them and maybe you're seeing John Locke make a speech or something like that in the background. It wouldn't it wouldn't work like that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like it has to be its own kind of standalone thing and like, oh, you know, just like lost the anthology series or, or whatever the hell it is. Right. And by doing this, you're definitely right when you can focus more on the mysteries of the island and use the characters as a tool to unlock the secrets and explain more about the island because the island is definitely one of these examples like Louisiana and True Detective where the setting is definitely a character in the show. And with Lost specifically, the island is a prominent character on the show. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's not just like the tough streets in New York or Chicago or whatever. It is a prominent character yep. with attitudes and almost like emotions at times yep. and everything that affects, that affect the characters. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they, they're, they, you know, in the course of loss, they are literally walking around and living on top of like a living, breathing puzzle box. And mm-hmm. you could, you could just focus on that puzzle box and figure out how it, I, I guarantee I would almost guarantee you that there is there's probably locked away in, in a vault somewhere um, some explanation for some of those things that Q Lindelof and maybe even J.J. Abrams wrote. Of course. Yeah, I they've got to have stuff that have played like so close to the chats. And I guarantee there's even things that they haven't even taken the time to explain. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, of course. Absolutely. All right. How about uh, how about your second uh, reignition, your second reignition property here? Okay, so in keeping with the theme of early 90s NBC science fiction dramas, I'm going with this show called Earth 2. And I don't know if you remember this show, but I, Earth 2 I was... I do. Clancy Brown, correct? Like you this... fucking bet, dude. Yep. Yep. Oh, you fucking bet. Oh, yeah, I'm going to get to him in a little bit here, too. You bet. And um, so Earth 2 was a show that um, aired from 1994 to 95, basically like fall 94, spring 95. Yep. And it aired... After Sequest on Wednesday nights, I believe, I think Sequest got moved from Friday to Wednesday by this point in time in NBC's lineup. 
So the show, very, very simple premise. It's um, the Earth is a dead planet. You know, we're, we're never actually on the actual Earth. But human beings are living in these space stations around the, the dead Earth, looking for new planets to inhabit. And there's a group of explorers, which are the main group of people, that go to Earth 2, the second Earth, and they explore this livable planet. And it's all about the kind of adventures that happen on, on this brand new planet and everything. So I'm doing this also as a movie. I, For some reason, I'm surprised they even got one show out of this. But I mean, there's definitely room for... You know, when you have a whole new world, there's definitely room to do like, you know, 24 episodes or whatever, maybe even more. Mm -hmm. But I do think that this particular show would work better as a movie. And I want it directed by um, Bu Zhang Hu, who um, did a really, really great job of showing people surviving on a train after Earth had kind of gone to hell and Snowpiercer. Uh, so I'm imagining. Real quick, Bong Hoon Joe. Bong Hoon Jo. Thank you very much. I'm sorry about that. Bong Hoon Jo. I really suck at pronouncing everything. Um, <laughs> so, I, so I really, yeah, I'm really bad at that, dude. I got to get better with it. The, the fact that I've read that I said Softy Brothers correctly many times in the same episode, like that was worthy of a <laughs> that was a bit, right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I would like Bong Jun Ho, right? Bong Jun Ho. Close enough. Bong Jun Ho yeah. to direct this readaptation of Earth 2. Like I said, I can only imagine what that guy's going to do with a whole other planet if he somehow made a cool movie about people like living on a train and everything. So the um, the cast that I have, okay, so here's where this gets pretty cool. So Tim Curry was on this show. Yes. And uh, I'm actually not even recasting him. I'm just giving a CGI Tim Curry face on whatever body. Like I don't ever <laughs> want to replace that man in anything. Then Antonio Sabato Jr. was on this show. Oh, I and forgot, I'm not I forgot this. I, you know what? I just, before you get into it, I'm like re recalling this show better and better now. It's got mm -hmm. a great cast. It's got a pretty impressive cast. Yeah, you cannot go wrong with some of these cast members. So like Antonio Sabato Jr. was on the show. I can't stand Antonio Sabato Jr. So I'm not even going to reboot his character whatsoever. We're just going to write that guy nice. like out of nice. history and stuff. But the um, the three characters that I did want to focus on, um, Terry O'Quinn was on the show mm -hmm. for a little while. And uh, I am going to sub Terry O'Quinn with um, or re reignite him with Corey Stahl, who is definitely the next bald default character he, actor the, out there yeah, in Hollywood. Yes, he is. Absolutely. He, <laughs> he's, got to th he's got to thank Terry O'Quinn for his whole career at this point. Yeah, exactly. Like that guy needs to thank the fact that Terry O'Quinn lost a bunch of hair before he got into Hollywood. I'm telling you, like those two dudes with hair, it just does look strange. Different. Totally have, does. Have strange. you seen Have you seen Terry O'Quinn's episodes of um, Star Trek TNG? I have not actually. No. He looks really strange with a little bit of hair. Okay, interesting. Interesting. I'll keep that. I'll keep. Wait, who was he on that show? He was just. He was Riker's captain for like two episodes. Okay, there's there's an image that's coming into my mind that might be Terry O'Quinn. I'm gonna have to look it up after the after the show and stuff like that for sure. But um, but yeah, they, Corey Stahl owes his entire career right now to to Terry O'Quinn and the, paving the path for men without hair in Hollywood. So um, the next one, Clancy Brown, who is Sergeant Zim and Starship Troopers, the big dude and stuff who throws the knife at Jay Busey. Mm -hmm. He's he's one of the main characters on the show. He's one of the leads. And um, I'm not gonna lie, like. I would have him replaced with John Cena. There's something about John Cena as like the big guy lead that I really, really enjoy. And like, you know, he could be in like a bad movie and still kind of be watchable. But I remember like him in Trainwreck and 
I really enjoyed him in Trainwreck. You know, I mean, there's not a lot of stuff that I can hang my hat on with him other than the big actiony stuff. But yeah. whenever, whenever I do see John, oh yeah, he was in this uh, Cockblockers movie too that he wasn't in, surprisingly horrible in either. So I, I do like John Cena. Um, anytime there's like the big heavy, you know, badass lead guy, he's he's usually the guy that I think of, and uh, the female lead for the show. Personally, I, I really enjoyed this um, actress. I thought she was phenomenal on The Witcher, and I'm totally going to butcher her last name, but it's Anya Chalora? Chalatra? Chalatra? Hold on. Something like that. I'll look her up real quick while you're... But you know who I'm talking about, dude. The girl who is Jennifer and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. She, she's she's phenomenal. I would put her in um, in this reboot as Earth 2 as one of, the, one of the doctors that they had, like the badass doctor on the show. I'm trying to find her... Anya, oh boy, yeah, probably. I yeah. assume Anya Chalatra would be my guess. Chalatra, yeah. Okay, I'll go with your guess on that because it sounds way more articulate than mine. But um, I, I'm guessing, I, I, I'm guessing Chalatra because she's probably Indian. She looks like she's Indian. Yeah, she's English okay. and Indian. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, she's. Um, I think she's great. I really enjoyed her on The Witcher. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd like to see her in some kind of, you know, some kind of more like sci-fi type stuff and everything. And kind of like the badass doctor is like the first role that comes into my mind. I gotcha, I gotcha, dude. Earth. T- I I was almost in my head. I was almost thought you were gonna go with Dark Skies here when you were getting to your second one. But um, dude, I, I I forgot about I forgot that like NBC had this sort of um I don't know would you call it like their their like Green Crusade. Something like that. I, I mean, like, like they, that's. I mean, I, I deep. Our uh, Sequest was for sure a show that was about keeping the oceans clean and like a, like a more peaceful, peaceful Earth in the vein of Star Trek because it is Star Trek basically under under the ocean, where like the ocean is this like beautiful, inhabitable place that we were filling with garbage, and then Earth Two is obviously us getting away from the planet that we filled mm-hmm. with garbage. Dude, I, if I'm not mistaken, I remember like um, you know, when NBC went green, they do like the green kind yeah. of uh, mm-hmm. peacock logo. I remember the green peacock logo for some reason appearing on, C- on during uh, Sequest. So I would not be surprised if this was there. Let's get some sci-fi stuff, but still kind of like make a statement at the same time, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And NBC, and I know that they've had like heroes, they've had the Cape, they've had other kind of attempts to go sci-fi like in in the last like 20 20 or so years but i just don't think that they've really hit it the way that they hit it with sequest and this little glimpse of uh programming in the 90s no and and this was all a lot of it was all a lot of uh, several networks did this a lot of it was like response to the x-files being successful that yeah. it's like fuck well we gotta have a sci-fi property like what like what what do we have um and you know i know i know just like off the top of my head like dark skies for sure was nbc's attempt at like of having the x-files exactly um but it just was real interesting that like they just i I, they seem to have like a very at this point in time they seem to have a very particular agenda (laughs) that they were Mm -hmm. that they were pushing through their shows and you know it's amazing that like it's amazing that like something the scope of earth 2 got off the ground in 1994 was it Yes, it was ninety four. That something like that got off the ground in nineteen ninety four, because that 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 is very at the time when TV is very episodic. That's that's so like that has such a big arch to it that it's amazing mm-hmm. that that got off the ground at that point in time. Yeah, I'm telling you, the fact that they even backed something like that, it's just it's so surprising because it would just never happen today. 
And we're, I'm so far removed from a network like NBC taking a chance like that, that it, it, the whole thing like almost looks like a foreign language to me when like I, I think back on it. It's like, wow, Jesus Christ, they actually went with something like this. I, th- I think it's I think it's and I won't take too much longer on this one, um, but I think it's because it's at the at the same time, right around the same time you had uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine was was I mean, it was episodic, but it wasn't. Like there, mm-hmm. there, there are entire arcs from that show that took an entire season to resolve, um, and then th- this was, apparently there's a debate um, between fans of this show that that's, uh, that Deep Space Nine just stole the story from the show, but Babylon Five um, was the same way, and Babylon 5, Babylon Five like there's stuff apparently from Episode One that pops up in Episode Ninety One that like affects like what happens ninety episodes later. Really? Yeah, and like the same. I forgot who writes it. Like J. Michael Straczynski or something, or J. I, I don't remember who the writer is. The same guy of like the 124 episodes, I think. The same guy wrote 120 of them. Jesus Christ! Like so, well, what, I mean, it's, ne- it's a consistent story from beginning to end. What network did Babylon Five air on? I I feel almost positive that was either UPN or Sci-Fi. Okay, and and then Deep Space Nine would have been UPN, right? That like might have w been, 4, Channel Forty Three, whatever. That it might was. have been UPN. I think, I think at that point in time, Star Trek wasn't on one network because TNG was across. Like uh, uh, Picard, the original Picard series was on like multiple networks. It was basically whoever wanted to buy it. Okay, gotcha. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I'm like I can remember it being on Forty Three, and I can remember the Next Generation being on television too. Like, God, I'm just that old, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. definitely. Yeah. Anyway, but anyway, um, I'll get into mine here. I'm I'm taking a movie and I'm gonna make it into an anthology TV, TV series. Um, Very nice. And I think this is because maybe you can answer this for me. I don't think we have any action anthologies. We have horror anthologies, true crime anthologies, crime anthologies, sci-fi anthologies. I don't believe we have an action anthology, do we? There's no action anthology that I can... They have comedy anthologies, so I think action... Action might be the only genre that hasn't really gone the anthology route that I, that I can think of anyway. Nothing that comes off the top of my head. Nothing came into my mind. I mean, there's like, there's like episodes of, uh, of um, like the Twilight Zone that have you know like an action sort of bend to them but like it's you know that's sci-fi is is what it's really going for um so i'm gonna make an action anthology and i'm taking the banner of under siege uh the the steven seagal movie and what i'm what i'm gonna go here what i'm gonna go with this is i'm gonna make it sort of like each season it's a new front in the ongoing war on terror there's obviously going to be some kind of like hostage scenario or some other element that like sets up a ticking clock that we have to, you know, that we have to address by the end of the season. Um, but, like, I'm not going to, I don't want to include overt political messages in this, though. I want this to be, like, a direct homage to, like, the 80s action movies that we had growing up, where it's just a team of kick-ass soldiers, or cops, or whatever the situation calls, whatever the season calls for. It could be even, you know, cops, FBI agents, could be spies, whatever. Um, they have to go take down the equally hard-ass terrorists. Like, that's it. It's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. There's going to be, you know, a lot of gunfights, a lot of a lot of uh, hand-to-hand combat action sequences. And I really think this could be a really cool way to sort of introduce introduce um, American audiences to, like, when, we're, we, when we went out, we had a big episode on the raid. This would be an excellent opportunity to have, like, Gareth Evans and everyone involved with the raid take over, take over a season. 
And mm-hmm. so American audiences really could get introduced to Iko Uwe and Joe Taslim and Gareth Evans. Um, it would also be a really, really interesting way to bring back um, some, like, ba- bring back and pay homage to some of our 80s action heroes. Like, to have, like, Dolph Lundgren play play a terrorist. To to bring back uh, Stallone and have him play, like, a beleaguered cop or something that's leading the, leading the task force. Whatever it is, like, you can just take, you can take all these, like old action figures and bring them in with like the new, the new wave of action figures and put them all on the same TV show. See, I'm telling you, dude, there are times like where I don't want to watch something that's really thick and heavy and hearty and stuff where like, I just really want to, I really just want like an action movie, you know? And a lot of action movies that I have seen have mostly morphed into like the superhero genre and Mm -hmm. stuff, which Mm -hmm. is, which is number one, why I enjoyed watching the raid so much. Cause it's just such a throwback to being a straight up fucking action movie and stuff. And you know, like, like I'm a dude, you know what I'm saying? I was a young male at one point in time who loved seeing stuff get blown up on screen. And while that is, you know, part of me still enjoys that in movies, I guess, you know what I'm saying? Like that's never really going to go away for me. And we've talked about the last action hero. God only knows how many times in the last couple months. And I like that part of like the movie going experience is always going to be fun for me. So why the hell not throw it into like some kind of anthology show and stuff. And, um, and, and make it something cool, you know, where you could really like focus in and be an awesome and throwback and stuff. Yeah. I I mean, there's like, it's no, like I said, I want to keep I want to keep the politics of of what it means to have like a world police force, um, you know, murdering terrorists on site. But you know, I just like I, I wanted like I want to bring there there was a point in time where we had some like action TV shows that were pretty decent, and we've kind of gone away from them for various reasons. Um, like I said, like we're we're deluged in like in horror anthologies and stuff like that right now. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I mean, just why not figure out a way if there's a way you can give me. A an Arnold Schwarzenegger and a Jackie Chan cameo. Give it to me. Give it to me on TV. That'd be fucking great. And then have a bunch of people like get into a, a huge gunfight or a car chase, whatever it might be, and let's just fucking do it. It'd, it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Dude, you could do so many cool experimental things like that where like the whole episode is like one giant car chase, you know, like mm-hmm. they, in like the first five minutes they get in the car and they don't get out of it till like the last act and stuff. And yeah. You could you could have like like following your under siege theme too. It could be like a guy who steals a car with somebody in it. And the whole thing is about this guy trying to get out of the car. Maybe like, um, the guy who stole the car is like an old Navy seal or right. something. And he's just kind of playing with them the whole time. But yeah, like there's definitely room for that. And there's really cool to like, there's really cool opportunities to take some of these situations or some of these like archetypes of action movies and really dive into them on like a more like real and grounded level where you're in the car for 45 minutes or whatever it is. They did a really cool, they did a really cool thing on uh, that show I was telling you about Banshee that I've recommended before where in one, I think I want to say it's like the third season. um, They have an episode. You can, they have an episode where they, it's essentially like a bank heist episode um, except for they're stealing, they're stealing money that was stolen by like military contractors in Iraq they're, okay. st- they're stealing like $20 million or something that's kept in this like army base. And the whole, that's the whole episode is them getting in and out of this, getting in and out of this military base with the money. But you can, but like all of them are like <clears throat> the one character is like at a control room, essentially watching and like, you know, watching the base and they all have GoPros on so you can watch the action, see what they're doing. So you can like, you know, open doors and do shit for them, you know, via computer. Mm-hmm. You can also go online and watch that episode from any character's point of view through their GoPro. Really? Yeah. 
Oh, that's a cool. That's a cool little marketing stick. Yeah, I, I like stuff like that. That's awesome. It's pretty. It's pretty cool. I, I actually did it. Um, I did it like the the night after that episode. I did it. It was up. It was up on. Uh, at the time, it was up on Cinemax's website. I'm sure it's, it's somewhere else at this point now, but. Um, I'm sure you can go find it on YouTube or something. It's just really interesting. It's not like you don't get to see every single thing from point from the point of view, but like you can like you know once uh, this one character's essentially like 10, 15 minutes worth of footage ends, it like prompts you want to who do you want to watch next? Do you want to watch okay. you know this person next? This person next? I'm sure someone put it in like a full you know someone just edited it all together at this point. So yeah i got you dude yeah and see little stuff like that that the audience can experience outside of the show i i really like stuff like that even if it is just a 10 minute clip online or something yeah, like that it's yeah. really sweet yeah, there you go under under siege would be my uh my uh second property there that uh i don't know i don't know my, my steven seagal gif adventures has me had me thinking about <laughs> it so yeah under siege is a fucking classic dude like that is just one where like seagal was really in his prime and yep. everything and, and that is like what you want out of an action movie it's very it's right away to the point the ship is under siege within the first 30 minutes and stuff like that. And, you know, there's all these kind of cool, like, little twists along the way. And for a very confined story, it's great. Dude, Tommy Lee Jones is in that fucking movie. Like, it's awesome. Tommy Lee Jones and Gary Busey are great in that movie. Like, it's yeah, it's definitely, like, a fun villain movie, too. Of course. Yeah, I forgot Busey was in it. That's right. Yep. All right, let's move, let's move on, though, to the, the next section. That was our warm-up. Of course, it takes, like, 30 minutes for us to get through a warm-up. No big deal. Um... <laughs> Calling this next section Body Swap, we're going to take two famous people and switch their circumstances. And we'll be talking sports here, talking some music, and uh, just general entertainment, anything basically that's not music. Um, so, Chema, why don't you kick us off? And I'll tell you what, start anywhere you want. Okay, I'm going to start off with sports. That, okay. that, this one I'm um, kind of interested to hear your thoughts on. So. Sure. For this one, um, like right now, like via Instagram, there are so many throwbacks to like the draft and all this stuff that's going on with the NBA and everything. Like mm -hmm. you're just seeing all these old photos and stuff. Right. So I was going back to the 2013 NBA draft where the Cavs like all of a sudden out of nowhere drafted Anthony Bennett. And this trade is still just kind of sat with me or this draft. I mean, this draft pick has kind of sat with me for the longest time because it's just so unusual and everything. It kind of took me by surprise, even why they did it. So I'm definitely not doing the Jonas route because I know that, that that's probably where some of you guys might be thinking is where I'm going. But what I'm actually thinking about here is I want the Cavs to draft Kelly Olynyk. Okay. And I'm going to defend this right now. Okay. And I'm going to, and like, believe me, it's a little unusual. Okay. <laughs> But Bennett, Anthony Bennett was a bust. So Kelly Olynyk, we would have at least got something out of. You know what I'm saying? Like Kelly Olynyk had played for the Celtics for years. Um, he, he may not have been the best player, but he was definitely better than Anthony Bennett. Okay. So if the Cavs draft Kelly Olynyk, not only do we not draft Anthony Bennett, but Kelly Olynyk does then not dislocate Kevin Love's shoulder <laughs> right. in the the 2015 Finals and yep. everything. And dude, I'm telling you, man, if LeBron would have just had one more member of the big three. Mm -hmm. I think that we could have beat Golden State. Like I, I personally believe that and everything. And people out there, you guys can say what you want or whatever. But my own personal belief, and I remember watching that whole like playoff series and everything. And when we got to the finals, I think Kyrie went out in the finals, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Yeah, like first, he was first game, game. He was already he already had was coming back from an injured knee, and then the first game, um, in the like at the end of the first game, he re-injured it. That's right. That's right. So, like, if we would have had Kevin Love, like, just anywhere in the, those finals, I believe it would have been a different outcome that could have easily resulted in a Cavaliers victory. And 
by drafting Kelly Olynyk in the 2013 draft instead of Anthony Bennett, that is one way to ensure that we could have gotten another title out of uh, out of LeBron's time in Cleveland. I that is a great one, by the way. That's that this that's very much in the spirit of what I was thinking about um, when when I wrote this. Yeah, no, I, I first off, here's here's why Anthony Bennett got drafted um because like he was like a physical he did have like a lot of you know he was i think he was like six foot seven so not like tall necessarily not like well he's tall but not like huge but like he he had like a lot of physical traits that um you know he could kind of jump through the roof he was pretty he was big and strong he was kind of like a really now now that we know about like what anthony bennett is he was zion before zion like gotcha. just this big bull of a human being but Zion, just we're, as we're going to find out, I have a feeling he's a totally different animal than like anything we've ever seen maybe in the NBA. Um, but but there wasn't that year like that that year's draft is bad. Obviously, there's like some there's some bright spots in there um, with you know Giannis being like the like the biggest one. But mm-hmm. that draft was bad. No one right. no one walked away with anything that they liked in that draft. Like looking back at it now, if if we were obviously Giannis would be like the pick. But like even like Victor Oladipo, I think was in that draft. Like that would have been a good pick, number one overall, um, considering who went who went, who went in front of uh, you know, considering like what what was at the top of it. And then the Cavs get like the number one draft pick again. And when was that? It was uh, it was the couple years later with the, no, it was actually the next year. It was the next when year we drafted uh, Andrew Wiggins and everything. Yeah, that was that was blood money for uh, for making us draft Anthony Bennett. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely but yeah I, that's the one i decided to go with like i felt Giannis was the easier one on that so For i did sure. want to dive into the whole thought exercise of this um this episode a little bit more and i remember watching um kelly olenic dislocate his shoulder and mulberries and stuff while that game was going on and it was just i mean like i'm telling you oh, man, one pissed. more member yep. one more member of that big three and that would have been a cleveland championship and I also think... a non-warriors dynasty i might add i know yep exactly i think so and, and, and not only that, if let's just say let's say we did draft Giannis, uh, number one overall, there's no way LeBron comes back. Like we, yeah. we wouldn't have had, we probably wouldn't have the draft capital to move and get certain pieces, and LeBron probably never comes back. That's a good point too. Yeah, that is definitely a good point. It's just you know food for thought there. I like it though. That's that's a really good one. Um, I'll 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 stick with sports then. I'll I'll, I'll go with sports here too then, and I'm going to go very LA centric here, and you're you're going to understand exactly why. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and put Mike Trout on the Dodgers and put Cody Bellinger on the Angels. Um, there's, I, I think this is the move that would benefit, well, it would definitely benefit Mike Trout more than it would benefit Cody Bellinger. But I think it does like have positives for both of them. So we're in agreement, and I think everyone on the planet, for the most part, is in agreement that Mike Trout is the best baseball player in, in, in Major League Baseball. Uh, I mean, there's... Yep. Go we ahead. talked about it two weeks ago. Yeah, we talked about two you. weeks ago. I, I mean, I could make the argument for Shohei Otani being the best pure baseball player, but the best major leaguer is in fact Mike Trout. Um, so we move Mike Trout from the Angels to the Dodgers. We now have the league's best player on one of the league's storied premier franchises, a, a franchise that is what over 115 years old now. It's uh, old, dude. Yeah, from yeah. Brooklyn, everything. Yeah, uh, you know this is this is one of the blue bloods uh, in Major League Baseball, along with the Yankees, along with the Sox. I mean, even the Indians, and actually both Sox, if you want, uh, the Cubs. Those are like your your blue blood teams. Um, so we get Mike Trout off of off of LA's second team, uh, LA's other team, the one that's not even LA. It's in Anaheim, and 
so uh, just from like a markability standpoint, Mike Trout is now instantly a bigger star. Um, because just you and I both know that there is, you know, especially now living in LA for a while, the Dodgers and the Angels, it's it's just night and day. The, yeah. the, the, the way that like, not that there aren't a lot of Angels fans, but like the Dodgers carry a different swagger in LA than the Angels ever will. Exactly, dude. You could not have said that better. <laughs> so, so we have Trout now on one of the premier teams. And now, by the way, the Dodgers, they're a great team. They're a, they're a really great team. You could make the argument now that they probably should have won two, two World Series uh, in the past few years. But nonetheless, Mike Trout would finally get a chance to play some fucking playoff baseball, um, which obviously would just be great for him because um, I'm sure he wants to win. But also it would mm-hmm. be great for the rest, of, the rest of baseball and the rest of the country to see the league's premier star actually play baseball when it matters. Um, as we mentioned before, Mike Trout has four playoff at bats and they're all from the same game from a wild card game from like seven years ago. That was the last, that was the last or five years ago. That was the last time the angels were in the playoffs. Um, you know, and quite frankly, in, in terms of what the Dodgers are missing, he's they're They're probably missing that bat, um, that mm-hmm. kind of do everything bat, which is why they traded for Mookie Betts. They're missing that sort of do everything bat. And you know, that five tool player is probably what they're missing anyway for, so for so missing ingredient for the Dodgers anyway for Cody Bellinger, he gets to be the face of the Young Angels, right? Like the Angels mm-hmm. have a lot of. I mean, obviously they have Albert Pujols, who's like a hundred years old, but like and and uh, Justin Upton, who's like in his mid thirties. But like they have a lot of otherwise young players that really could form a nice core here for them going forward. So then you have Cody Bellinger, the aforementioned Shohei Otani, uh, Andrelton Simmons. I guess he's not that young. I mean, he's like twenty nine, but still younger player. And I know they want to bring up, and they're probably going to play with the way this Major League season is going to work out. They're going to bring up these two super high prospects, um, you know, super touted prospects in Joe Adele and Brandon Marsh. You would have this sort of young core that would kind of position the Angels. If, if the Dodgers are a blue blood, old school kind of team, the Angels could kind of position themselves from a marketing standpoint as the anti-Dodgers. They're the young guys. They're the super athletes. They're the new school a little bit more swagger, maybe a chip on their shoulder for not being the team in LA. Like they could literally, it would work out for both teams because they could literally sort of play off each other from a marketing standpoint too. Yeah, dude, I can definitely see where and how this whole thing would work and benefit both teams for sure. And you, to start off with what you're saying about the angels being this kind of, you know, anti antithesis or whatever to the Dodgers, like the, you know, where you could definitely go have another LA baseball team they with Kelly Cody Bellinger would be in a prime position to do this and they can market themselves as the exact opposite of what going to like a Dodgers game is. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Where like parking is more affordable. The stadium is more affordable. It's newer. And they had that cool thing with like the rocks and the water yep. and all that shit. You know what I'm saying? So the angels are holding like a much better like deck of cards when trying to appeal to like a younger audience and like newer fans of baseball and stuff. And when you go down into like um, the angel stadium, even though I haven't been there, like I'm assuming that it's, you know, a little bit more in line with like what we know from progressive field where it's a little more localized stuff. Mm -hmm. The Dodger stadium is, I, I personally like, I like it. It has this cool like character to it that I really haven't seen in any other kind of major league ballpark. But it's really old school and like it does have, you know, that that kind of blue bloody early baseball kind of thing. Whereas this whole like out with the old and in with the new that might work to the the Angels advantage and everything. Mm -hmm. And then in going to bringing Trout on the Dodgers, which I, number one, I really, really enjoy the idea of hearing that because it does give the Dodgers 
what they would need to finally bring home that fucking World Series. And I know that, like, they had this stuff with Houston and the, the play call, and they were definitely, like, there's some sneaky shit going on there with mm. the Astros that, you know, you could talk asterisks and all this stuff, which, you know, which we have before on the, the podcast, but that would just be the thing to solidify the Dodgers as, like, a major like a major force in baseball. And I, I'm not necessarily throwing the dynasty word out there, but that could happen where we could usher in a whole new era of West coast relevance baseball, which is so much better for the sport considering I actually kind of underestimated how popular the Dodgers are out here. I had like, you know, you hear the whole thing about LA and nobody caring about sports. That's really only football, like yeah. because everybody's so transient and they come from, you know, football's got a little bit more stronger bonds and everything like that. You didn't have pro football in LA for a long time. Very true too. Yes, exactly. I'm missing out one of the key thing, one of the key things, but the, um, the Dodgers being not only being relevant, but being really, really good it would just mean something to this town, like almost going back to the days when like USC was like such a dominant, like football team and everything. And I've said it last week, I'll continue to say it while I I have the opportunity. Sports are definitely better in general when the West coast is, is relevant and the West coast is good. And having the Dodgers be that team on the West Coast, I, I think is it's awesome. They are the team to do it if there was going to be a West Coast baseball team. Mm-hmm. The the only exactly like what especially for baseball, what serves baseball best, the Yankees and the Red Sox being good, the Dodgers being good, and then we need teams from the middle that are surprisingly good. You need like the Indians to pop up and have like a good run. You need the Astros to pop up and have a good run. You need the Kansas City Royals to pop up and have a good run. Like that's like that's yeah. when baseball's at its healthiest. When you have the when you have the the old school blue bloods doing what they do, and then every year like a new team from the middle of the country or just like the all you know the the less wealthy teams popping up and having a good run. That's when baseball is like at its best. Yeah, exactly. Like that one little like sleeper team. Like no one thought the Tampa Bay Rays were going to do something one year, and then right. all of a sudden they're they're relevant. Exactly. Yeah. All right. How about uh, uh, go ahead and take the next one? Where again, wherever you want to go. If you want to go straight down to music, or if you want to go to other entertainment, go for it. Okay. I think, yeah, I think I'm going to go right down the line. I think I'm going to go with music on this one. So, um, in the great Oasis debate between Noel and Liam Gallagher, I, I feel that you have to side with Noel Gallagher in this whole thing. Like Noel Gallagher is the songwriter. That guy's the life, life, lifeblood of the band. Liam Gallagher is just kind of a, he's kind of like a, just a singer. Granted, there's a classic voice there, but Liam Gallagher doesn't necessarily bring a lot of things creatively to Oasis. So, the swap that I'm going to do, I'm going to swap Liam Gallagher with Damon Albon of Blur. And you guys might also know him from the Gorillas, the gorillas. and the Good, the yep. Bad, and the Queen. Yeah, the Gorillas are fucking awesome, dude. You can't go wrong with the Gorillas. But the reason that I'm doing this is because in the early 90s, Oasis and Blur were like these two kind of British bands where we we're just kind of waiting for one of them to break, okay? And by 1995, Oasis had two albums and Blur had like three or something like that. So they were kind of releasing albums like around the same frequency and everything like that. So in uh, 1997, this is when I would actually do the swap because um, Blur had released Song 2 in 97. So they finally had like a like a legitimate hit in America. And Oasis was doing um, their uh, the, the third album, which name of which is Escape, Be Here Now, mm-hmm. is that Oasis's third album. So I would do this swap. And even if we swapped them in the beginning, that's entirely cool with me, too, because I just want Liam Gallagher is just such a 
he's just such like a almost like a toxic figure and stuff like that that I feel that he kind of put the shackles on Oasis and everything. And we've been without Oasis now for close to kind of close to like 15, 20 years, something like that. Yeah. And it's all because these two brothers won't resolve this feud. So by removing him from the equation and putting in Damon Albarn, you just have, you get the same kind of voice. You almost get like a more talented musical persona and stuff mm-hmm. like that, that might be able to add more things to Oasis. And by putting Liam Gallagher in Blur, you give Blur that same angry British singer that kind of matches the tone that they were going with in their Park Lake album in 1997. And basically nothing can change, dude. You could still have Wonderwall. You could still have Don't Look Back in Anger, Champagne Supernova. You could have all of these songs and you could actually have Oasis with like some staying power and everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to necessarily say that they would have survived or whatever. And right. believe me, Damon Albarn could still do the gorillas on the side, but by in order to basically ensure that Oasis could still be making music, be successful, not be one of these bands that are, it's just like one of these fight bands where you're just kind of like almost waiting for just drama to break out on stage right. or some shit like that. Um, I feel that the only way by doing to do this would be to swap Damon Albarn and, um, and Liam Gallagher. But we never would have gotten the great um, unplug set where Liam showed up to to heckle Oasis. Yeah, you know something. One like, of the I believe things of all time, <laughs> dude. If there's, let's just say that Noel and Liam are like, you know, they're obviously like brothers and stuff in this little fantasy I, I created. You could still get him drunk and let him throw shit at Noel for the okay, hell of it. You know, I, I, I guarantee you that they're still going to hate each other. But now there's not a band at stake. Right. And, right. Yeah, and dude, like, I'm. There's been a lot of really, really good British bands that have come out in the last like 20 years and stuff like that. But I don't know from bands from like our like our generation, like the the mid 90s when you and I were like coming of age and starting to like you know be able to like sing along with songs and stuff and not do it in some corny way to appease your parents, but with like music actually starts to mean something to us. There's not a lot of bands from that time period that number one, like are super huge, like Pearl Jam and Radiohead might be like the only two bands from that time period that could still like play Blossom, for example. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what, what do we have after that? They're Smashing Pumpkins. They've been around for 20 years. Foo, Foo Fighters, obviously. Yeah. But there's not a lot. You no. know what I'm saying? And it just it seems like to me and like and I could be way wrong on this, but it just seems like there's more like. Uh, yeses and Stixes and Paul McCartney's and people sure. from like 20 or 30 years ago that are still relevant playing or not that 20, 30 years ago, like 40, 40 50 years, years 50 ago years, yeah. that are still playing stuff today that is like, you know, the decent sized crowd. Like Paul McCartney's playing stadiums, Elton John's still kicking it and stuff. And the bands from our generation, like there's not that many of them that are playing to large crowds. No. And then there's also not that many of them that are even really like around. So Oasis not being around is just kind of like a missing part of the MTV buzz bin that, you know, it's just this lost connection that I've had in my life, I guess. I, I, you're right. That, like you're right on so much there too. Like it, it's, I mean, the real answer is if, if these idiots, they don't even have to like be best friends or they could just fucking get along enough to write songs and enough to perform. Um, they'd still be going, even if they weren't making new stuff, you'd still have them on tour every now and then. Um, yeah, I, I, I just I, I'm in, I dig it. Like I'm in favor of it, especially if we can still get that unplugged moment where Liam's yeah. smoking and yelling obscenities <laughs> down at his brother. Um, I I do have a feeling though. Like you're right though. Like if you don't, I, I'm I am Team Noel in in this regard. But I'm gonna go ahead and guess that he's like an insufferable asshole too. 
Oh, I, I guarantee that he is, man. There's no way in hell that those guys are just like nice, normal people and everything. I did want to tell you one thing really quick when it comes to the Unplug show. Um, when I lived in Florida, this brief like, you know, workaholics type stint partying thing in Florida that mm-hmm. I had in my life for three months, I was like a kind of basically like the equivalent of like a door to door salesman. And one of the corporations that I was walking into is in this big office park in um, North Lauderdale, Florida. And, uh, you know, kind of basically like what you see like on like uh, like freeway drive and all that, like warehouses yeah. and that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. And I walk into one to like do this like sales pitch and in the lobby i look up above me and in the ceiling is one of the inflatable ice cream cones that they had from the oasis unplugged (laughs) album because this this warehouse just happened to do like build shit for concerts and everything like that whatever the hell business it was that's what their job was was to like build shit for concerts and they had like a couple of um different things from unplugged concerts showcasing some of the work that they did you know like whatever episode it was i thought that was pretty cool that's 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 actually really awesome all right. Um, mine's mine's a little out there. Um, so, you, and it's really not. It's not really about the music per se. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and swap because because these guys are collaborators and friends. Um, very, they they're making very similar music, um, albeit with like different. Definitely, definitely in, in one one of their parties cases, definitely with different shades to it. But I'm gonna go ahead and swap the the level of fame. Between Kid Cudi and Kanye West, and so like Kid Cudi is our Kid Cudi is like world famous, and not that not that Kid Cudi is not already famous. He definitely is. He's you know he's he has he has like some top he has albums that chart all the time on the Billboard. He has songs. He collaborates with everyone. He's like he is in fact a um, a, a very. He's a very well-known musician, rapper, whatever, performer, actor, for that matter. Um, you know, he's in HBO shows. He's been in movies and stuff. It's not that he's not famous, but Kanye West is on a different fucking level. Um, Kanye West is iconic. You know, 30, 40 years from now, Kanye West will still be iconic. Um, Kid Cudi will be remembered, but maybe not in the same way that Kanye West is. <clears throat> Excuse me. So... This again. This is less about the music. Although, if if Kid Cudi was this famous, a lot more you'd. I I I'm I've always liked Kid Cudi's music. It, the melodies are much more, are less, are less ingrained in like rap than a lot of rappers. You know, than Kanye West's uh, melodies mm-hmm. and things are. Um, just the albums are more concept albums. Not that again. Not that Kanye West doesn't Kanye West doesn't have con- concept albums. But like Kid Cudi's albums seem to be like stream of consciousness concept albums, like they're 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 definitely to me like a better look into what Kid Cudi is as a person versus what Kanye West is as a person. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, if we were to swap these two, I think that I think that Kanye West a long time ago would have gotten a lot more help for his mental health issues, and. You cannot convince me that he is not, that he, I, I mean, maybe he is getting help behind the scenes. And he just doesn't want anybody to know it. But if he is getting help behind the scenes, it's not good help. Um, <laughs> he has never, ever been the same since his mother died in like 2007 or 2008, whenever it was. Um, like, you know, immediately after that is like the, is the, is the Taylor Swift blow up. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on bizarre at the same time, you know, going on bizarre rants uh, on, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, all the social media platforms, um, you know, not to mention, not that, 
Not that his support of Donald Trump is, in fact, a mental health issue, although, I don't know. Um, but <laughs> the way that he allows himself to be used by Donald Trump when it's convenient, and everyone else can see it and he can't, that's an right. issue. That is, is yeah. clearly a mental health issue. Um, in 2016, Kid Cudi went on Facebook and Instagram and told everyone, like, I am not well. I'm checking into rehab. I'm checking into counseling. I'm just, I got to disappear for a while. And he's come out the other end of that, like a significantly better and changed person. Like he's, I've actually read some articles on his, his time in rehab and his time in counseling. Like he's a very different person um, than he was before. And, you know, that's creative geniuses. They both in that, in that way are kind of cliched creative geniuses and that they're very mm -hmm. emotional and toxic and volatile or whatever. Right. But one of them went out of the way to go get help. And one of them did not, probably because it wasn't, probably because, you know, between management and who he was involved with friends-wise and who he was involved with relationship-wise would hurt his brand if he disappeared for months to go seek mental help, to go seek, um, you know, alcohol rehabilitation, drug rehabilitation. It would hurt his brand too much. And I, I think mm -hmm. that there are people surrounding him that are significantly more concerned with Kanye and you know the brand of Kanye West than they are with the person Kanye West, and it, it's it, it like he is so far down this hill. It doesn't seem like there is anybody. It, it seems like he's so insulated from anyone that might be able to reach out and help him. Even Kid Cudi, who he's like really good, good friends with, seems to not be able <clears throat> right. to reach him in this kind of way. And if if Kanye West was sort of on the same level as like Kid Cudi, I don't think anyone would put up with his behavior. I mean, he's much more volatile, much more wild than than Kid Cudi ever was. I don't think anyone would put up his behavior, and he would fade away a lot, a lot more rapidly than he than he would because of his, you know, his genius is keeping him in the limelight. And if he wasn't this talented, he would fade away. Okay, so dude, you make a really a lot of fucking good points there, man. And so I'm going to try to address some of those things just in little pieces and stuff because. Sure. Number one, like I'd never really thought about that. And like I did have some – there was some point in time when I was writing this article, the, the idea of switching Kanye West and Kid Cudi kind of came into my mind, but definitely not like this. And I was thinking about just reversing their roles on the Kids See Ghosts album. <laughs> but uh, but um, you're making a whole lot of really good points here. And to start off with addressing Kanye West's like, level of success in, compared to Kid Cudi's, okay – if he was not as successful as Kid Cudi, there's no way in hell that he would have as many enablers around him. Right. There's just not a chance in hell. It, it's, and it's, you're like, right. it's like it's like Michael Jackson. Michael yeah, Jackson had dozens of enablers and no one to say no to him. That, that's exactly right. That is exactly right, dude. And even when it is now coming down to his own mental health, like his own well-being, Kanye West, the man, is threatened. It is all like, hey, man, you just you can't go into rehab. Well, we'll find a way to spin this. You're some twisted genius who's like seeing the future and everything like that. That's what the way we're going to go with mm -hmm. or some whatever stupid kind of strategy that they pick. And this is not only really harmful to Kanye West, the person like I would not want anybody doing that to me, especially like when you're paying people to really look out for your well-being. Mm -hmm. But it's not good for the country because he is so famous. He's he, there's talent in that motherfucking guy. You know what I'm saying? He's 100%. a talented guy. He's got a he has a major platform. He's married to one of the most popular social media presences in the world and stuff. So these people, they have a voice. They have people that listen to them. And if Kim Kardashian could post a picture of a lipstick. Um, a lipstick container on Instagram and that brand all of a sudden sells $2 million worth of lipstick. Right. The same thing could be 
the same logic could be applied to their messaging and what they say that's not um, advertising a product and the mentality and their whatever the their words like affecting people and people not only and listening to them and believing them and doing what they say. And that's why I made this whole that example with Kanye West being the Lionel Begglesdorf of Trump's plot against mm-hmm. America, because like, once again, like it's hard to actually describe it in detail. You just kind of have to watch the show to get the full scope of what I'm saying. But there is just something that is not connecting with this guy. And it, it has to go back to, to his mental health. Like, I mean, there's just no other explanation for it. You know, I, I there's, I don't know how he's not seeing the forest through the trees. Like, and even just when I said like his, his silence during this whole like black lives matter movement has been kind of surprising to me. It's because in 2009, Kanye, that guy would have burned down whatever, you know what I'm saying? That yeah. guy seemed like a major, like activist, major crazy do good, do everything, you know, be behind this movement. And now Kanye just seems to be like a little bit more reserved. Like he's just kind of like showing face and like, Hey, now I have to let people know I'm at least, at least support the bare minimum here, you know, but Mm -hmm. I just, I'm, there's something that I feel that he could be doing more. And, um, by switching the kid Cudi Kanye West, it probably is honestly the best thing for him as a person while it may not be the best thing financially, but we're starting to see like what Kanye West is without these meds, whatever it is, without him seeking help, just being in this field of enablers. And I got to tell you that while he may be famous at some point in time, this whole thing is going to be threatened. You know what I'm saying? Whether it be, he can't play Mm -hmm. shows anymore. He's not selling records anymore. Something is going to have to come along to wake him up. I'm just not necessarily sure what that is going to be or how long it's going to take for him to, to have that moment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, Gemma. Exactly. They, you put it. You put a nice bow on that for me. That, that's like that's a really great way to sum that up. Well, thank you very much, sir. <laughs> yeah. So okay, so I'll, let me go into this uh, this third one really. Yeah, quick go for because this this one is the, um, the the shorter one of the uh, of the three for this category for me, and I am doing a massive and so important swap here on two of the most prominent chins in Hollywood. I'm going to take this back to 2008 and I'm going to take Aaron Eckhart out of the dark night and I'm going to replace him with Vigo Mortensen and I'm taking Vigo Mortensen out of Appaloosa and I'm putting Aaron Eckhart in Appaloosa. Okay. Okay. Now keep in mind, I, I have seen Appaloosa. It's been once. I can't really give you a whole lot of the details here. The only reason that I'm actually doing this is so there's some actual logical, plausible way for me to switch Vigo Mortensen and Aaron Eckhart. The reason that I'm doing this, and as much as I do love The Dark Knight, I will stand by The Dark Knight until the day I die. It's And I love it so much, and it's kind of like America. I love America so much that I see its flaws and can complain about its flaws and everything. And The Dark Knight definitely has some flaws, mm-hmm. okay? It really oh, does sure. have some flaws. And without getting into a major conversation that could, I'm sure could be a whole episode in and out of itself, one of its flaws was Aaron Eckhart, okay? And like this whole Two-Face thing and... it's not necessarily Christopher Nolan's fault. It's just because Heath Ledger was so good. That's all I wanted to watch was Heath Ledger. I really didn't even care if Batman was in the movie, to be honest with you. It could have been (laughs) Heath Ledger (laughs) for two hours. I would have been cool with it. But because Heath Ledger was so great, it really kind of casts a certain like cloud over the Two-Face character. And Aaron Eckhart, I do like him in certain things, but this role was not one that I thought he knocked it out of the park out of or out of the park. And Viggo Mortensen, I feel, would be a much better replacement 
Vigo's just the man. He still has the fucking chin. He was in this movie. Um, it was a remake of Dial M for Murder. It's called A Perfect Murder with mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow and Michael Douglas. And he played like kind of the dark, you know, villainy type guy and stuff like that. He was hired to to kill Gwyneth Paltrow and all the, you know, whatever stuff goes wrong. Um, but he just has this kind of swagger about him and this commanding presence that I feel would have made for a much better Two-Face and even though no matter who you're going to put into Two-Face, there's always going to be that cloud because Heath Ledger's performance was so amazing. But I feel that by giving Vigo in there, it wouldn't have been maybe as big a cloud as Aaron Eckhart had over his character of Two-Face. Yeah, and you know what? Just to add to it here, he play, uh, have you ever seen A History of Violence? I have not, no. A Cronenberg movie with, with Vigo as the lead character. He plays like this like one-time like mob assassin or whatever that's like out in hiding. Um, uh, that's or it's hiding like in you know plain sight like in a small town. Like Vigo has, Vigo has the chops to sort of be, to be like that that sort of like, I I, I don't know what exactly how you, like what type of villain I'm going for here, but like the the villain with more depth. Mm-hmm. Like he has he has the chops to do that, and he's got the look for it too. Like he looks evil. Yeah, he he has this whole like. He doesn't really have to say much. And when you even really think about the Lord of the Rings, like Aragon wasn't necessarily a character that popped off of the screen, even yeah. in the way like Gimlet did. <laughs> did. Right. But but um but he's there, you just you look at him and you just kinda know. You know, it's yeah. like a very rare quality or even thing with actors where you just kinda look at him and you mm-hmm. just see and you just know. He is one of those guys for sure. Yeah, I I'm I, I am on board for this. And you're right, it's not like a, even necessarily a shot at Aaron Eckhart, it's just like you you have you have this you know consistently good performance from Christian Bale as Batman. You have the outstanding performance from Heath Ledger, and then Aaron Eckhart has to try to keep up with both of them. It's tough. Yeah, it's it's a, you can't do that, dude. Like I mean, Christian Bale went on to be Academy Awards. Heath Ledger won an Academy Award for the Joker and would have won many afterwards. It's just too much. It's a tall order, dude. It's nothing against him, but that's difficult. It, it takes a whole different person to even hang with yep. those guys, let alone make an impact on the audience. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, yeah, this this is my shortest one, too. And I will. I want to go ahead and, and preface this by saying I do not wish death necessarily on this person that I'm swapping them with. Um, but the circumstances kind of make it call for this. Um, so I'm switching Bill Hicks and Dennis Leary. Uh-huh. Um, I, again, I don't want Dennis Leary to die. That's not what I'm suggesting, but I, I want uh-huh. Bill Hicks to survive his pancreatic cancer. It's tough to believe the dude was only 32 when he fucking died. Um, but I, I've been watching, I was really thinking about this, you know, cause we've had this conversation before about Dennis Leary lifting the persona, um, uh, you know, that Bill Hicks had created, um, in his, in his later standup, you know, by the, basically Bill Hicks was dying by this, knew that he was dying at this point in time. And um, Dennis Leary just basically adopted that character that Bill Hicks had been working on for the past like you know, 12, 13 years since he was a t- teenager, uh, basically. Um, he just lifted that and, you know, the Dennis Leary that we know today was Bill Hicks in the, you know, the late 80s and early 90s. And I've been watching, I've been watching some Bill Hicks stand up recently and kind of comparing and contrasting with Dennis Leary stand up. The Bill Hicks is sharper, more intelligent, and he has a lot more to say than Dennis Leary has to say. Um, not that, like, Dennis Leary doesn't have, you know, like, some good, you know, some good thoughts on society and everything else, but you can just tell that they are lifted from Bill Hicks and they just don't go as deep. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's just much more to it that Hicks had that Leary does not have. And I think that even if you were just to go straight, let's pretend that Bill Hicks had the exact same career that Dennis Leary had. I think like when you have like these satirical characters, um, that do have like complaints about society and the way the world's going, like think of like Edgar Friendly and Demolition Man. Um, there's more depth and humor to that character if it's played by Bill Hicks. Um, yeah. His villain role as Fallon and Judgment Night, which again I think Dennis Leary is great in that role. I think it would be significantly darker with with Bill Hicks. It might not be as there might not be some like as much dark humor, but I think the character would be darker because of <coughs> excuse me because of the way because of the way Hicks sort of very much enjoys um, in his stand up routines, his comedy routines. Hicks really enjoys making fun of the dark elements of society. I think that that those villain roles would be even darker. And then move to like the burnout characters like Tommy Gavin and Rescue Me. That character would be much sadder. And maybe in some ways much more relatable if if that was Bill Hicks versus Dennis Leary. Like I, I just Bill Hicks has also the look on Bill Hicks's face, he already looks like again, he was four years younger than us when he died. He looked twenty years older. Um like he just he, he had like a world where in, in part of that's because he was sick, but also because like he just has a world weary face. Mm-hmm. Like he just looks like someone that's been beaten down. Um, and I think that would work with those like burnout characters that much better. And quite frankly, just anything that involved humor would be better because Bill Hicks is funnier. Yeah, dude, I can understand where you're going with this and everything. And with Dennis Leary in particular, like I always kind of viewed him as like the, you're right. This kind of like loud, almost like obnoxious kind of thing. Like you go there and he does stand up comedy. He's like, do it yeah. like this. Like what is going on with this? You know? And those guys, like, it almost seems like Dennis Leary is, like, one of those people who used a comedy routine to become famous and then, like, had to, like, work and work and work and work and work. While as Bill ne- Bill Hicks is probably a little bit more natural, yes. which would make these roles a little bit more believable and stuff. And that's how you could tell that the act is pretty much stolen and everything is because it doesn't have that same level of authenticity that made the act what it was when it was with Bill Hicks. You know what I'm saying? So... There, I could definitely see w- where you're going with this, and I, I really wish that I was a little bit more familiar with like Rescue Me and some of Dennis Leary's like non Judgment Day and uh, uh, Judgment Night and um, Demolition Man work. You know, I wish I had, I had more familiar with him as like a main character yeah. and stuff, because personally, I'm actually surprised that he was able to pull off a main character like in Rescue Me and for as long as he did, no less. So I just, I, I guess kudos to him for pulling it off, sure. but um, those things would definitely be better by the person in which Dennis Leary is trying to play, yeah. you know? Yeah, it, it's, um, he, he, Leary was on a show that I thought was pretty funny. It was called The Job. It was, okay. it was like a, it, it was a procedural, it was like a, it was a cop procedural that was a comedy. And like, he was pretty funny in it. There's, there's actually a really, there's actually a really funny episode where they, they try to bust up a massage parlor. And like all the cops just end up going there to get hand jobs. And <laughs> I mean, it's actually, it's pretty funny, but like looking back on it now, like, I can't help but think I'm like, God, this would be even funnier if Bill Hicks was doing this. Like mm-hmm. it would be even funnier. Yeah, dude, I'm telling you, man, that's like, it's just a clear indication of like when somebody's ripping off something, mm-hmm. like it's just, I don't know. There's all these like little specifics and the way people look, the way the voice might sound or something that these things that may sound very, very simple to like the average person, but in all reality, they're huge, yeah. and especially when connecting with the character. Yep. And, and just real quickly here for, you know, 
um, the, the the persona that, that Dennis Leary lifted was like someone who was a um, you know in many ways like an observational humorist. Um, obviously not the same way that like Jerry Seinfeld was, but still mm-hmm. like you know an observational humor was sort of like the core of what Bill Hicks did. Um, if Bill Hicks was still alive today, he would still be a relevant comedian. Um, with all the social upheaval and everything that's been going on the last couple of years, this would be, if anything, Bill Hicks would be even more famous now than he was in the 80s and 90s with everything that's happening now. I haven't heard a fucking peep out of Dennis Leary. Yeah, dude, I haven't heard much about him at all lately and everything. And dude, Bill Hicks would be one of those chide galleries of like, you know, 40 times when Bill Hicks was so meta, it wasn't even yep. funny or yep, something exactly. like that. You know, he, those quotes over and over and over again, like he would be more of a um, he would be a stand up comedian. But there would also be this kind of like almost like a assigned role where he's kind of like a um, almost like a preacher of a gospel type thing. Not in yeah. not like in the sense that people are buying into like his religion, but it's kind of like a philosopher type thing, yeah. like almost he, like a Timothy O'Leary type or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I would say like he would be our generation's um, uh, Carlin, you know, speaking out on, on a lot of different things, uh, so, you know, societal topics. What's going on in the world? George Carlin is exactly what yeah. he would have been when yeah. he got older. What people think Joe Rogan is. Exactly. exactly. And I like Joe yeah. Rogan. Exactly. But I like Joe Rogan, but like what people, I saw this great meme or something like that that was trying to describe Joe Rogan. And I'm totally going to butcher this, but it said something like Joe Rogan is like what people who just have thoughts have and people buy into it or something. It was, it was this really great thing. And I just added this part. The yeah, my, my, my friend posted one that was pretty good. It was like, it was a coronavirus one where it was like, um, you know, Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan makes attempts to reach across the aisle and talk to talk to Republican uh, congressmen and Democratic congressmen. And he also believes that a, that the sauna will ki- will kill the coronavirus. So, yeah. you know, take take everything he says with a grain of salt. Yeah, that, that's true. Yes, exactly. All right, Gemma. So let's move on to a section here. I'm calling I'm calling uh, coming off the bench. So in this case, we're going to substitute someone and take over a major role. Like it's something substantial. So we're gonna we're gonna one for each here. We're gonna talk about uh, a starring movie role, a TV character, and a sports moment. And we'll get into whenever we get to the sports moment, we'll get into more detail with that. So uh, Chema, again, how about you kick us off here and give us your starring someone you're subbing into a starring movie role. Okay, so this one we've uh, we've talked about this particular situation on the podcast before, but I feel I must revisit it because. Jess and I just started watching um, old Fresh Prince of Bel Air episodes mm-hmm. on HBO Max, and nice. HBO Max is actually pretty tight. I'm not going to lie; it's very it's got good. A lot of stuff. It's got a lot of stuff. Very, very good. Very satisfied with it for sure. And um, so we've been watching these episodes, and there's been all kinds of stuff. We were just wondering about the show, like whether or not they ever address the fact that the house is different, and <laughs> just these just these little things that yeah. even I I completely forgot about, dude. Like, and they, the the show is amazing, even going back to the the first season, and dude will smith is a fucking star he is a goddamn star even Mm -hmm. back then man like we're talking the very first episode this guy just has something about him and also coincidentally django came back on netflix like a last month or two months ago and i've seen it a couple times now and i just cannot get over this whole idea of will smith playing django which would have just been i like jamie fox i think jamie fox did a great i did a great job but will smith i think would have totally crushed this and i was going i was going through will smith's um imdb and check this shit out dude so he has not worked with an academy award-winning director for best director out of any of the last 20 
Academy Award winners. So he's never done like a Scorsese, um, even like Spielberg. He has not worked with that's, Spielberg that's in the shocking. last like that's in like the last twenty years. Yeah, exactly, dude. Nothing like that. Um, he's never worked with any of like our modern auteurs. Like he's never landed like one or two lines in a in a Wes Anderson movie or even like a Tarantino movie and stuff. And like like Adam Sandler, like I kind of agree that now's this point in time where he's just got to start doing smaller budget. Like none of this men in black five, none of these big franchises, none of that kind of stuff. And Django would have been a great opportunity for him. And I remember like this point in time where Will Smith was actually in discussions to be Django. Mm -hmm. If it was going to happen, whatever. And in the end they went with Jamie Foxx, something about like Will Smith's own writing staff or something wanted to like make alterations to the script. And Tarantino was like, no moss, you know? And I do kind of think that Will Smith in a way maybe realized that this is a bad move because in the last like probably like 2014 to like the present he's he's tried to dabble into some like more like darker edgier stuff and I just don't think that it's hit well like he had that Margot Robbie movie like a couple couple years ago yeah, yeah. so so I don't know I just I personally feel that Will Smith is one of these guys where he could just turn it up at any given point in time he just has that level of talent and I don't think that we've actually seen his career performance yet like I was going back through his IMDb stuff and I'm like oh yeah he was really good in this and Pursuit of Happiness he was awesome in but I don't believe that those are his career performances and we still have yet to see it so if I was going to substitute somebody in i i think Django would have maybe been his career the 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 one role that he did that was so off kilter and different and it was in a really good movie kind of like what paul fiction did for john travolta's career interesting what about ali okay so ali yeah that's like i don't necessarily think that that's his career performance either dude like and the reason that i say this is Ali, as great as it was, I loved it, cried at the end, dude. I thought he was amazing as Muhammad Ali. I don't think anybody else could have played that role. But Ali is just lost on us. Like, as great as that movie is, it is just lost. Like, it's not, you know, it's not like a, um, like, Raging Bull for a boxing movie. Now, Raging, I know this may be comparing apples to apples or whatever, and hardcore film people feel free to shit all over me right now. But Raging Bull has been in the discussion for 30 plus years. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like at, at some point in time, whenever the anniversary of the release date of Rage of Bull comes out, you will see your social media, somebody, some, some like Tom Withers or some like local persona might make a, Oh my God, I remember seeing this movie. It still kicks. Like you'll see these kind of tributes to Raging Bull and you'll see Raging Bull being used as a model for boxing movies and still being in the discussion. But Ali, it's not like that. Like even like when people like think Michael Mann, they immediately go back to Heat. And don't get me wrong, like Heat's a great movie and everything, but um, and like Heat is probably way better than Ali when you think about like just its relevance and everything like that into the history of cinema. But Ali, as good as it is, it's just not in the discussion yeah, anymore. You're, no, you're just right. Some... You're right. One hundred percent right. And and I will. I'll blame it on if I was going to blame it on one thing. It's just the time period that it came out. It came out in like 2000, 2001, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I would say, in my own personal opinion, there was something about the early 2000 cinema, maybe leading up into like 2009, 2010, like when like Nolan really started to like become more prominent and everything outside of the Batman movies. Hollywood is just, it's just lost. Like that area of cinema is just kind of like, I've seen a lot of these movies because I grew up during that time, but a lot of these movies are just like, you know, eh, okay. So yeah, that came out and 
yeah, Ryan Ryan Gosling was in this movie with Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, that's cool. Like, all right, so let's talk about Birdman. Let's talk about uh, Roma, whatever it is. Like, we're seeing much better movies now than we did during that time period, in my opinion, even though Hollywood is doing the rebakes and you can argue that it's lost originality, but there's just something about like the movies of today that I feel are at least making more of an impact on me than those movies back then. I gotcha. No, that makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. And you're right. That, that would have been regardless of Ali or anything else that would have been a career defining performance Uh, because Mm -hmm. you and I both, you're right. Like there is, there's so much talent that's being wasted on like the fucking after earth's, and um, I forget. There's he's been in some other trash movies. Recently. Gemini Man. Gemini, Gemini Man, Man. Yeah. There's so much more talent, and like that Gemini Man movie. Like I feel like there's an interesting concept there, but like I'm guessing, I, I'm guessing Will Smith isn't necessarily at fault for that. Like I think I've said that before. That like a bad movie, like a, a movie's never been terrible because of Will Smith. Mm-hmm. But I, I like I've, I've never bothered to see it. I probably never will see it. I'm assuming it's just a terrible movie, you know, top to bottom. <laughs> But, like, he's being wasted in those movies. Just absolutely yeah. wasted. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's like this. It's like when Tom Cruise kind of, like, picks something that you think is going to be really good and then it's just not. That's kind of like how these bright, these Gemini mans are, where there's these amazing concepts. But they take these concepts that really require more, like, more deeper characters and everything. And it's like you're taking these concepts that are so rich and you're injecting the hollywood blockbuster will smith persona which like i said like the the man is great but the way that they write the characters the way that they develop the characters are very similar to like all of his movies and that doesn't necessarily fit in some of these more heavier kind of ideas and concepts i I will agree with that 100 percent, 100 percent agree with that um i'm glad you mentioned tom cruise because that's a perfect segue um (laughs) so i I might since since i'm teasing it that way i might as well just go ahead and say it i might as well just go ahead and start with it that Boy, did they make a mistake in the casting of Jack Reacher. Um, the 2012 movie based off of uh, the Lee Child um, series of books, uh, the Jack Reacher series of books. I think there's like fucking 20 of these goddamn books. Uh, Lee Child's a British author. Um, it's It has less to do with... I don't know if you've ever seen that movie before. Have you seen Jack Reacher? Chummy there. Yes, I am. Dude, sorry about that. I had my microphone off. Sorry oh, about that. Sorry. Uh, I um. Have you seen Jack Reacher? Okay, I have not seen Jack Reacher. Um, I, honestly, I heard it was bad, and I just I never really went farther than that. There are some movies that Tom Cruise are in that I hear are bad that I still watch anyway. But that was one that I'm just like, okay, yeah, whatever. They shot it in Pittsburgh. If I see it, I see it, kind of thing. It's not bad. It's actually point in fact. I actually kind of enjoy it. But it's not interesting. It's not. Um, there's nothing about it that stands out. It's a pretty by the numbers sort of um, action thriller type movie. Um, there's the, the, let's just put it this way: like if you once you've seen that movie, you've seen every type of that movie, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. I understand. Definitely. That's not really the controversy here with uh, with this um, with this particular movie. The big controversy came from simply the casting of Tom Cruise. Here's um, if I can find, do I have? Oh gosh, of course I don't have the fucking appropriate window up here, so I'll just I'll just go through it from memory. Um, the character of Jack Reacher is like an ex, um, like special forces, uh, you know, soldier turned, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, kind of like mercenary for like whomever wants to hire mercenary pirate investigator or whatever. Um, yep. the 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 physical description of of Jack Reacher, 
Six foot five, two hundred and forty pounds with a fifty inch chest. <laughs> Tom Cruise, five foot seven, one hundred and fifty pounds, forty two inch chest, according to yeah. internet sources. Um, you know, normally this kind of thing wouldn't, and this like believe me, this bugged a whole bunch of people who are big fans of this Jack Reacher series of books. Um, I don't really care that much about like the physical size of actor. You know, like Tom Cruise is great and pretty much great in everything he does. Like, especially the physical stuff. I mean, even in his mid-50s now, he still is, like, a good physical actor. But, like, it is, like, a key in the book how big Jack Reacher is. Like, it's it's a, it's a metaphor how big Jack mm-hmm. Reacher is. That he's, like, this unstoppable force. That he is he's larger than life for various reasons. Like, it's it, it, it gets mentioned in the books because it's important in the books. And they sort of wash that away for this movie... They're like, well, it's not important that this guy is a foot shorter than the character, a hundred pounds lighter than the character. Um, so at this point in time, this movie comes out in 2012 and there was a sequel in 2016 that I can tell you that you do not need to watch. Um, the, the, you, if, you, if you happen to catch Jack Reacher on like TNT or something on Saturday, you'll mm-hmm. see what I mean. Like it's a totally okay. fine type of movie, but nothing, they're not breaking a new ground. However, when this movie came out, uh, 2012, probably so assuming it filled in 2011. How did this movie not grab Jason Momoa as the fucking as fucking Jack Reacher? Um, J- uh, Momoa is coming off hot uh, off a of GOT, you know, mm-hmm. uh, his, his portrayal is Cal Drogo. Um, instead, he gets snatched up to do this terrible movie with Stallone called Bullet to the Head. Um, and then he was he was the lead in the equally terrible Conan the Barbarian. But like, even though those movies suck dick. They're proof that, that, and between playing Cal Drogo, uh, playing uh, Conan the Barbarian, and obviously later playing Aquaman, there's just proof positive that Jason Momoa can go ahead and take and shoulder, shoulder what it, what it needs, shoulder what it means to be the, the leader of an action franchise. Um, cause this clearly, I mean, like I said, there's like 17 or 20 of these books or something. And Tom Cruise's simple presence in this, in this project meant that they wanted to make this into a franchise and obviously there's two movies but no plans to make anyone any of them any further had they just had gone ahead and put jason momoa in this role i guarantee you they're still fucking making these movies i would guarantee you he would be in five or six of these things before uh he decided to call quits dude i'm telling you jason momoa like he has aquaman now but at that point in time when he was definitely trying to establish himself as like as a Hollywood big guy, action guy yeah. or whatever, this would have been a way better choice than like the Conan, the barbarian and stuff, because oh. the Conan, we're, we're going to be revisiting Conan, the barbarian for years. And with the exception of like Arnold, you know, like, I don't know that. I just think that movie is just, it's Schwarzenegger's role. It doesn't really do anything for me to see like a new Conan, the barbarian no. movie. Like what is he going to do? Lift a heavier stone in this one or fight a bigger version of a tiger? I, you know, whatever it is. And the fact that they missed out on him, you could still be making Jack Reacher movies as a franchise because Tom Cruise, like that he's not going to go a franchise route in this. Like even if the movie is good enough to merit five or six movies, Tom Cruise has got mission impossible. He's not just going to do like another Jack Reacher franchise. You might get him for like one, two and three, but then after that, it'll be recast. And it'll be like those, um, like Jack Reacher colon, you know, whatever, um, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, insert word here and stuff like that. While as Jason Momoa, you actually could have got a little bit of longevity out of that guy. And I don't, I don't know if he would have ended up doing Aquaman or not. I mean, I thought he was great as Aquaman, but like, I think I would rather have Jason Momoa, as a guy who's 
like it's they somebody who's viewed that can Gary a franchise. And I actually mm-hmm. think like a kind of a badass action franchise would be something that he's a you know definitely suited for. And we'll see what Aquaman has, but uh this franchise with Jack Reacher could have been a golden opportunity for him. Exactly. It, it, he just he fits he also fits like the phys- I mean it's not just the physical size. I mean he's 6'4" like 220. Um like he's got that sort of you know the the physical part down, but like the idea behind Jack Reacher too it's it's not that he's like a, like an insane like bodybuilder, like he's just like a naturally big guy and like Momoa is obviously very muscular, but like he's you can tell he's not like guy that is in the gym like the Rock four hours a day, it's right you know what I mean like mm-hmm. the size is natural there's obviously he obviously exercises like it, like he is it's almost it's almost as if Lee Child was writing this book with Jason Momoa in mind, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah no dude like I I remember um a lot of basically a lot of people making a big deal about the size and everything like that. And I was kind of surprised originally by how much backlash was given about something like the size, but through like the the discussions that you and I've had and through like the many crack.com articles I've read that have covered this topic. This is like one of these things where like in the books, the size is important and stuff like that. You, you know, like it's, it is almost like key to the character the same way, like a facial scar is used to identify exactly, a villain exactly. or something, something like that. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's a little bit different. Yeah, exactly. Like there's like I read an excerpt where like he walks into a, like where Reacher walks into a room and like, like he doesn't say anything the entire time. He just stands there behind someone and like bends someone to his will just because he walked into a room mm-hmm. like yeah. Tom Cruise with all of his persona and his great, his great charisma isn't intimidating me into anything. No, not at all. I'm not bending at the, the will, like, or getting a, uh, being afraid of Tom Cruise walking in the room. Yeah. Jason Momoa, on the other hand, exactly. yeah, the, even the thought of it brings a little bit of a scare to me right now. Exactly. Uh, so there you go. Uh, how about, uh, how about a TV character? This, I, I will say, this is the, this is the one that I really, I went the, maybe the farthest away, uh, away from in terms of like, or I guess this is the one that I changed the most. I'm curious uh, as, as to what you do okay. with your TV character. So, so this one was a, this one was a stretch for me too, and everything. And like I, um, I'm a big fan of the actress that I'm going to mention. I'm a big fan of Phoebe Waller Bridge. Like I, I, I figured somewhere in this episode I had to insert her into something. For sure. Okay. And dude, I'm not gonna lie. I ran through so many different options and choices and even like British programming, American stuff, like even what it would have been like to have Fee Waller Bridge as Elaine and Seinfeld. Okay. And I just could <laughs> yeah. I couldn't really I couldn't really land on anything. And the so for some reason I was walking like just walking around the neighborhood and there's all these billboards and stuff and one of them is promoting HBO Max and they have Jodie Whittaker on there, like the current Doctor Who Doctor, and stuff. Yeah, who, yeah. Who I actually like, I think is great. Like I really have no problem with her, but I want to sub in Phoebe Waller bridge for the new doctor who, and I'm going to give you this explanation. I'm going to give you the best explanation that I possibly can here. And that I really struggled to not only to put Phoebe Waller bridges in general, but I really got hooked into like struggling to find, to put her into a sci-fi role. Okay. And now granted, like she could realistically just put her in like a Star Trek uniform or something like that. You might be able to, to do something, but I feel the best way to maximize this character is to bake her the new doctor who, like there is mm-hmm. definitely this, this charm, this charisma, this kind of like nerdy hotness almost that Phoebe Waller oh, bridge sure. has. For sure. 
that would work so well in that character. She's got, she's British, you know, you have the accent and there's these ways that she delivers like quips or maybe it's even between the, the transitioning between breaking the fourth wall and being in the scene and Fleabag. But there is just this kind of like delivery that she has where I'm imagining like really educated type quips where she's maybe like making a humorous thing at like the signing of a document in like 1700 or some shit like that. And I feel like being that she's got to be, she's got to be a little bit taller than Jodie Whittaker, but there's just, it's just the right fit. You know what I'm saying? Like there's mm-hmm. just something about that that makes sense to me. There's not a whole logic or a lot of logic that I could use to actually describe this whole thing, or even if it would be plausible, because I think Jodie Whittaker is great. But if I am doing the sub in, there's just something about Phoebe Waller-Bridge in that phone booth. That image just looks so right to me. That would, that would be, she would be a fantastic choice for for the doctor if if and when you know well not if like when jody whitaker doesn't want to do it anymore um she would be a fantastic choice it would be such a different doctor too like the the sort of i'm not like i'll say this i'm not like super duper familiar with all of doctor who but i've seen it i've seen plenty of episodes of it and the sort of the humor is usually pretty light and whimsical and i would kind of like to see a little bit more edge um, on the on the humor that, that Phoebe Waller Bridge would clearly bring to the table, um, of course. You know, it, it's and it's not just like it, it's the delivery; it's the 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 way that like her voice lends so well to sarcasm, mm-hmm. so well to sarcasm. It would be a very interesting interpretation of the Doctor to have her. Um, and you're right, Jodie Whittaker's great. Like I, she was. I remember when I first saw her on her episode uh, in Black Mirror. Like I really enjoyed her her little turn there, and uh, like she's fantastic. There just would be a different edge to it with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yeah, she she's great. She's at the top of her game right now. And if there's ever going to be like the big payoff role where you make a bunch of money or whatever, like this is something that I, I just see it for her. Yeah, yeah. I, I did like how you brought up uh, Star Trek though, which is kind of funny. There's um, I, I I actually bought CBS All Access just so I could watch like some of the Star Treks. Yeah, and there's um. There's a character that pops up on Discovery, I want to say in the second season. Yeah, second season. It's played by Tig Notaro. Um, oh. And, like, Phoebe Waller-Bridge could be this, like, mechanic character. 100%. I gotcha. Because it's, I mean, it's Tig Notaro's kind of sarcastic humor, sense of humor that's, like, poured into this character. I could see Phoebe Waller-Bridge doing it, too. Yeah, Tignataro is like they're her and Phoebe are definitely like in the same vein. It's almost like the Phoebes is like Tignataro 2.0 or something, yeah. or Tignataro without the devastating incident with the cancer and everything like yes. that. There's definitely parallels between the two of them. Yeah. All right. This is all right, Chama. Dig in here. This is where where mine gets. Uh, it's it's weird because like it's the same show, but it's not anymore. I want to take, I want to take out Walter White. I want to take out Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad, and I want to put in another another AMC veteran and a tremendous actor, actress in this case. I want Elizabeth Moss to play the character. We'll call her Wendy White on Breaking <laughs> Bad. So the concept is still exactly the same, right? Like not really much changes other than the POV. So Wendy White is a pregnant substitute chemistry teacher who's trying to balance home and work life when her husband, the main breadwinner, is stricken with with lung cancer. He's no longer able to work. Insurance barely covers treatments. And plus with her pregnancy, uh, you know, Walt Jr., Flynn, he still has the special needs. The family, like, is basically running out of money. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so 
hence the adventure with um, with Wendy White now in the uh, in the world of Meth Begins. Um, but I think there's like some really interesting sort of there's some really interesting metaphors and analogies you can pull out with a woman being the main character that you don't get with Brian Cranston with a man as the main character. Um, you know her in you know her involvement in the meth trade. Um, creates a dynamic with like this world that is 100% run by men. Like we don't, we don't see another woman involved in the meth trade until we get to season five with Lydia. Okay. Is that correct. I, I feel like it's been a long time since I've seen this, that, that show and stuff. And if it is going to happen, it is definitely later. It's yeah. not in the first couple. Right. So just immediately you have this dynamic and like, obviously it's, you know, the, you know, the, again, the drug trade, mostly controlled by men, 99% controlled by men. It creates this immediate interesting dynamic that you can like really port over and think about. You can think about how women in general in certain work, in certain workplaces are treated that in, in the business world, women are second guessed. They're, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're second guessed. They're, they're hired sometimes for their appearance. They're, um, you know, lewd comments made in the workplace. This same shit would be happening with Wendy White as this underground, as this underworld meth dealer, right? Like, mm-hmm. it would be the exact same thing. Plus, I'm seeing sort of like, as, you know, you take away, you take away, um, you know, Wendy White from the home life. And, you know, who's taking care of the new baby? Who's taking care of, you know, who's helping out uh, Walt Jr.? Who's helping out sick Walt um, right. while this is all going on? And it's really like, then you have like another analogy and commentary about like, about like what women do in the household. You know, we always talk about how, you know, we always talk about like how women are underappreciated. There's a lot of women who don't have quote unquote jobs, but who work at home all day, that they are homemakers. They are making the meals, doing the laundry, doing the cleaning. What does that look like when that person is gone? And like, it's a catastrophe when people like, when people take for granted that kind of like unpaid labor that, that women do every single day. And you know, it just like it again. It's just like interesting analogies and dynamics that we that you didn't get to explore with Walt because he was a man. That you would get to explore with Elizabeth Moss because she's a woman. Okay, I absolutely love Elizabeth Moss. She was phenomenal at Mad Men. I haven't seen The Handmaid's Tale um, just yet. It's something that is it's in my like mental like kind of uh, checklist of mm-hmm. stuff to watch. She's phenomenal, dude. She's absolutely great. Like, I kind of wish she was in more things, to be honest with you. Like, I mean, I know she does work, but it's all just the stuff that seems to go, just seems to go by me. You know, apparently the Invisible Man is great. Oh, interesting. Apparently it's great and she's great in it, apparently. It's because it's, it's not, I mean, it's sci-fi, obviously, but it's a commentary on domestic violence. Okay. Okay. That's, I was wondering, is it part of that whole like new universal monster reboot thing that they're doing? I think it is, but like, it's not, it's definitely not like, I I mean, Marvel would never make a commentary on domestic violence. Okay. This is 100% a commentary on domestic violence. Okay. So it's like one of those movies that just happens to feature the invisible man, but it's in all reality. It's something else. Okay. I I definitely understand where you're going with that for sure. So like, I'll keep that in mind too, because um, I did see previews for that and it looked, it looked really, really good and stuff. So one of the main things that I feel would be a big time help for breaking bad by having a female protagonist instead of Walter White is this whole I'm in the empire business thing, mm-hmm. which like, okay, now don't get me wrong. Like the later seasons of breaking bad, it's really, really great television. I'm not taking anything away from, from what was put out by Vince Gilligan and company. Okay. 
But there is just this whole thing where Walt decides to go into the Empire business where I feel it kind of lost a little bit of the character that the show originally had. Where I, like, I would agree, yeah. Okay, so like I, I'm, a, I'm not as familiar with Breaking Bad as I am with some of the other shows. Like I, I watched it via Netflix like a couple of years ago, but I remember – it was almost this point in time where like that's when Walt really seemed to do like stupid stuff and he really seemed to do things that were like out of character even for this guy who was kind of like all over the place and stuff like I, there was things that he was doing in the later episodes that were things I didn't necessarily expect him to do in the earlier episodes and it was all because he had you know basically realized he made this great product and he wants to be the the big cheese and all that but it just didn't really work as well as some of the earlier stuff. And if we were to have a woman character in that role, I don't believe that she would ever make the play to get into the empire business. And it would be more about like her day-to-day struggles and more about like this underground network of stuff that's around her and kind of how it impacts her daily life and her family and everything instead of, Basically, just she makes a good product, and now she wants to be a drug kingpin. Right. It wouldn't really work seeing Elizabeth Moss um, in the room with a bunch of hitmen, and she's delegating orders to start killing people. It just wouldn't work. No, I, I, like the way the way that I kind of saw this, the way that I, I like it. The I mean, the 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 motivation becomes the same thing, right? Like originally, it's about money for Walt. Like they need money for things, and mm-hmm. so it would also be for the Wendy White character. It would also be about money, and then it also, again, for Walt, it kind of morphs into respect, right? Mm-hmm. I kind of see it as the same way, but sort of like in a different... It, I, I see it the same way, but working different differently for this Elizabeth Moss character, uh, version of the character, where it would be about respect, but, like, respect because she's not getting it at home. You know, like, she's got, a, like, a mouthy teenage son who doesn't... Like, in, you know, Walt Jr. is an asshole many times to Walt mm-hmm. Sr. In, in the in the show. So it would right. be about not having the respect of her son, about being, you know, like no one's, everyone's feeling, and like this, I know this happens with, um, with people who are the caretaker for sick people. They feel like, they, you know, and it's a terrible thing, but like they feel like they're being disrespected by other people because like they're the ones shouldering the burden of feeding, you know, taking people to appointments, um, you know, taking, you know, to cancer treatments, et cetera, et cetera. Like they're doing right. a lot of work, and. Yes. So, like, for, for this Wendy White character, it would be, you know, at home, she's not getting the same respect that she's getting, that she feels like she should, but she can immediately turn around in, in the meth business, and everyone knows who she is. Everyone knows her product. Everyone knows how tough she is. That's where she gets respect. Definitely. Yeah, you bet, dude. Then that would be a really good dynamic to keep her grounded into the home and deal yes. with issues that somebody in her situation would be dealing with without being too out of out of what the audience knows that situation to be. Right, right. Definitely. Yeah. I like it. I, I don't know. I just, again, like it's, it's, I, I mean, I don't know. I really don't know how you can necessarily improve Breaking Bad. I just think that would be such a fantastic version of it. Dude, that would be like an insanely, just like what I'm seeing and knowing what Elizabeth Boss can bring to the table. Like there's something about that, that I could see having shining moments and maybe in ways that the other season didn't have. And the other season was really good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're moving on here. Sports moment. Yes, sports, sports moment. moment. Just okay. so I, I just want to give a quick explanation here. So again, like we we want like to keep this grounded in some you know in some like reasonable reality, right? And the example I gave Chema was like the 2016 World Series. The final out was a utility player that we had subbed in, 
um, you know, for the Indians. We had, we had subbed in Michael Martinez. Uh, I think Michael Martinez has, like, career, like, six home runs. Like, he's mm-hmm. a light-hitting utility infielder, outfielder. Um, not ideal to have him as, like, the last um, bit of potential, last lifeline for you. So, like, we couldn't, we couldn't sub in, again, we couldn't sub in, like, Babe Ruth or Barry Bonds. It doesn't make any sense. But, like, maybe you'd rather have Francisco Lindor or Coco Crisp take that at bat. Like, that's a, that's yeah. a plausible reality. So when, yeah. I, when, I, when we talk about the sports moment. So, Chema, go ahead and lay your sports moment that you're subbing in someone else for. Okay, so I'm going to take everybody back to May 31st of 2018 during Game 1 of the NBA Finals. The Cleveland Cavaliers are down by one point to the Golden State Warriors with (laughs) 4.7 seconds left and George Hill on the free throw line. He makes the first free throw, tying the game, but he misses the second. And in missing, J.R. Smith nabs an offensive rebound and starts running in the opposite direction, confusing the absolute shit out of everybody on the court. LeBron's yelling at him, pass the ball, and he finally does, but there's not enough time to get the shot off, and the Cavs would later lose an OT. We all know what (laughs) I'm describing here. And once again, we're in June, so I have seen God only knows how many reruns of that specific play. Mm -hmm. I have seen LeBron with the two hands making the face so many times in the last couple weeks. One of the greatest sports memes of all time that thing became. Oh my God, dude. Yeah. There's, I remember when that happened and like the next couple of days and all the memes and the J.R. Smith edits. And I mean, it's just insane, dude. Like that was the internet blew up over that Mm -hmm. whole thing. And I'm going to be one of the guys here that says like, if that didn't happen, that, you know, if it was anybody else other than J.R. Smith and I'll get to that, we would have had a, that would have been a different outcome for that game. And maybe the series, you know, maybe they don't go on to sweep us. Maybe we get in the Warriors heads and something happens or whatever. Right. But so to get to where you're saying, really, who I'd want to take that shot. So I went through the Cavs um, free throw statistics for that season. And believe it or not, there's only like one other person. And it would have been Kyle Korver who had the best like free throw percentage on on the team at that time. Because I, I'm not going to lie, like I don't want LeBron doing that shot for some reason. I do want him in the backcourt and something crazy, something crazy happens, you know, where there's like a loose ball or, or yeah. something like that. So I would have, and then I would have, what I would have done is I would have put Kyle Korver at the at the free throw line taking the shots, and then I would have moved George Hill to where J.R. Smith was down on on the block and everything like that to get the rebound. Because I would have to think, I would have to think that any other player other than J.R. Smith. <laughs> would have just had the common sense to go back up with the ball. You know what I'm saying? Right, like right. It, it almost seems like something that is just like a, a J.R. Smith specific move yep. that, that that would happen. And I remember like where it's clearly, he says like, I thought we were ahead. Yep. You know, you could see that clear as day. Yep. And I want to believe that any other member of the Cleveland Cavaliers would have least known the score <laughs> of, that, of that game. <laughs> so, so for so for this this body swap example, it's um, Kyle Korver at the line. George Hill is on the block. Uh, J.R. Smith is actually with LeBron, like in the backcourt, mm-hmm. and I and I think Tristan Thompson was on the court at that time, and I would just have him on the other block. So, yep. so so that would be kind of how I would rearrange that time. And I swear that if if we would have won that game, while I cannot guarantee that it would have been a um, a series victory because the the Golden State Warriors with Durant was just unbelievable yeah. at that time. But there is something about what happened in 2016 where, like, 
I, LeBron just kind of got in their heads. I really don't know how else to describe it, but there was just something about the Warriors having a team mental collapse at the hands of LeBron James. And by losing the first game at home with your four person death lineup, mm-hmm. like it's just, there's something about that that um, to me would have just played hell with the Warriors mentality going forward. I, I've, I have always said that, that if we take game one, I don't, you know, maybe we don't probably still don't win the series, but you can't convince me that it goes any less than six games. And like, I'm talking like six tight games that LeBron is uniquely in a, in a very Jordan-esque way. LeBron is, was clearly in Golden State's head for several years. I mean, Mm -hmm. why, why did, why did, why did Draymond Green break down crying, calling Kevin Durant after they lost in the finals to us? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Like there was something about him that where he just kind of had their number or he like maybe well, not necessarily having their number, but but it's weird because like also like I could easily say that he maybe had their number because with the exception of the last two, when it was just basically Golden State without Kevin Durant and everything like that, like we easily compared with the Warriors. And as I said earlier in the podcast, had Kevin Love not gone out, I believe he would have won that series like easily. So the, the, the Warriors were a team that were basically designed for one reason and one reason alone. And that was to defeat LeBron James. So like, I, I'm just imagining like um, them having posters or pictures of LeBron up. They throw darts at and stuff. And <laughs> right. th- th- they maybe have like conversations with like an imaginary LeBron who's not in the room that mocks them for certain things. Like if Kevin Durant can- can't get the water to turn on the right way, it's like an imaginary LeBron is like mocking him from afar. <laughs> so, so that that's kind of like what, what I imagine the LeBron, James effect being on the Golden State Warriors until they ended up taking two championships there. Yep. Yep. I, I, yeah, I, I, by the way, I had a feeling we were both going to go personal sports moments, you know, local teams. Um, mm-hmm. Cause you know, we, we pay more attention to those big moments yeah. um, than like, say like, I don't know, like the diamondbacks and the, and the Yankees in the world series. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, so I love that one. And I'm, I'm also going personal here. I'm going to take us back to 1997 um, I don't know if you knew this, if you remember this, I kind of, I vaguely had the idea in my head and I, I went back and checked uh, baseball reference just to like, to make sure I wasn't sort of misremembering this oral Hershiser got bombed in two world series games. Um, oral was, you know, by the time he gets to the Indians, he's already like well past his prime, but I mean, he pitched well, uh, for the most part in the 97 season. I think his ERA was like around like four and a below four and a half. So like he was a serviceable, you know, number four pitcher. Um, with playoff experience, and he was actually pretty solid in the playoffs otherwise. But we get to the World Series, he gets fucking bombed in the World Series. Uh, here are his here are his stats. In two starts, 10 innings pitched, 13 earned runs, 5 strikeouts, 6 walks. That Whew. is not good. Um, in, in one game, he's out by the fifth inning. Um, I think he... I, I I do feel like some of those runs were like he left the bases loaded and like uh, you know other relievers came in and gave up some hits, but nonetheless mm-hmm. he loaded the bases in game one. Uh, yeah, game one, but in game five we had the lead after the fifth inning. Uh, we were up, I believe we were up two. I think it was like four to two. I believe we were up in the fifth inning, and then it just all falls apart in the sixth inning. Now. This is sort of like with the benefit of hindsight, the way that we'll approach baseball now, especially in the playoffs. If we, we how we did it in with Toronto when we when the Indians were playing Toronto, we put in um, in one game we put in um, uh, oh gosh Andrew Miller in like the third inning 
because we we had an early lead. It was I think it was might have been the Trevor Bauer start. We had an early lead anyway, and Trevor Bauer couldn't pitch anymore. Someone else came in for a little bit, and then we got like a two nothing lead. Andrew Miller came in and like struck everybody out for three straight innings. <laughs> um, so like that's how like bullpens work now in baseball. If you get mm-hmm. a lead in the fourth or fifth inning of like a World Series game, your starter's out. He's fucking done. We're bringing in all the bullpen arms. We're going to shut it down from here. Yeah. That's what should have fucking happened after the fifth inning of Game 5 in that World Series. Here's who they, here's who I'm subbing in in any capacity. I'm subbing in Paul Ossenmacher, Mike Jackson, and Brian Anderson. Why am I subbing those three in? Just at any point in time in, in Game 5 from the fifth inning on? Collectively, 12 and third innings pitched, two earned runs, 12 strikeouts, three walks between the three of them. Oh, Jesus Christ, that's looking way better than that, that um, yes. Oral Hershiser stats, for sure. Infinitely yes. better. They wow. were, and, and Brian Anderson was a starter for us um, for, you know, when he came up late in the season, or maybe mid, middle middle of the season. Uh, like, why you couldn't throw him out there for, you know, after Hershiser gives up seven runs in a game, why you couldn't throw him out there for at least, like, three to four innings? You know, just to get something out of him. We, I mean, we had some great, that World Series, Jarrett Wright was out of this world. Um, yeah. Chad OJ had a good World Series, and even like until Jose Mesa blew it, Jose Mesa was having a good World Series. There were there were options to throw yeah. to for someone to come in and throw and lock down that game five. And guess what? If we win game five, we win that World Series. Yeah, that's right. That is definitely right. And let me ask you a quick question: Did we have Julian Tavares at that in that World Series? We did not. He was um, gone by '96. Okay, okay, because I, I remember him being like a, he, was he was in the '95 really World Series. Gotcha. Okay, that's right. I gotcha. And I, I remember him being like a um, kind of like a, a stud reliever, like um, mm-hmm. in, the, in that time in the '90s and everything like that, dude. And yeah, so with the exception of some of the like some of the specifics on the statistics on that, I was I definitely can remember Oral Hershiser kind of like not necessarily performing so well during that time period. And you're right, man. If we would have won on Game Five on that, that would have been that would have been a World Series in the '90s Indians when I when I really, really fucking wanted it to happen. You know what I'm saying, <laughs> yep. dude? Like that was, I remember being younger and I went to like the first, like the very first, the, the exhibition game in, um, in what was Jacob's field at oh, the yeah. time. And like, nice. I mean, dude, it was awesome. Like to have like really good baseball and stuff like that back in, back in the city. And they had this fresh look with the jerseys and new stadium. It was new, this new that, and they're in the playoffs and the world series and all that. I mean, that was just like, that would have been the fucking time, dude. Like that was when, like the Indians, like that's they meant so much to me back then. Yep, uh, they meant they meant a lot to us back then. I mean, that's why we couldn't. Uh, w- like, you, I remember we had to like plan like family vacations around the possibility of getting Indians tickets. Yeah. Oh, dude, because they're yeah, so remember, fucking like, hard to get. Yeah, I remember like having to go down to Jacobs Field the day that they went on sale with my dad and everything, mm-hmm. and like waiting in line. And they had the lottery where you actually were handed a ticket and waiting in line to yep. buy them and stuff. And by the time we got to the window, which we actually lucked out and we were kind of closer to the line, but like you know the home openers and all that are sold out. All the Yankees games were sold out, and this was a matter of like you know minutes. twenty minutes, like yeah. nothing, you know. So yeah, I mean, God, I remember that was like a, just a fucking awesome period in um, Cleveland sports when at that time in the 90s with the Indians. For sure, for sure.